the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Them and it's them. Uh, she's starting kindergarten, and it, the story goes from there. Just to let you know. Uh, by the way, of course, Woody is watching out for her, so he gets into her backpack for the first day of school to give her a little moral support. As uh, the movie starts off, no telling what Buzz will be up to, but whatever it is, he'll be thinking he's going to do good, but. And it will be good by the, the time that the movie ends, but it will take quite a while for it to get there. <laughs> Just the way he is. All right, so what's some of the other movies? Well, you've got the new Chucky movie coming out. That's out at the theaters. Last night, it opened. There was not one single ticket sold for it uh, over in Cabot that I know of. Uh, in fact, the movie I went and saw and I thought there would be more, although I, I got to tell you, I went more because of who was directing the movie than knowing a whole lot about the movie. Uh, Luke Besson is the, or uh, Besson, I guess, is the director, and I, I like his movies. Let me just give you a few that he's done. The film Lakita, that was one. Uh, Professional, another. Lucy, another uh, that, that he's done. And so he's he's done a lot of, of, of fun action movies. Uh, he did, uh, what was it, uh, what was the one that he did with uh, Statham? Um, oh, doggone it, what was that called? I come up with it here and tell you what it is. Hold on, I'll find out real quick here. It won't take me but a moment to bring that up. And uh, what was that called? Uh, something. <sighs> Help me out here, Zach. The movie that Jason Statham was in that Luke Besson uh, directed. The Transporter? The Transporter. Thank you. I couldn't think of it. And and Besson's usually good about having a couple of action scenes in it where he, he does some different things as far as... Uh, the person fighting, for instance, in the transporter, you might remember when Statham was in the bus station or the bus uh, transportation place where they were working on the garage, and he spilled oil on the floor, knocked off the uh, foot pedals for uh, a 10-speed, and put them on his shoes so that he could, he could get traction and the people that he was fighting could not Uh, a really good um, movie a lot of a lot of fun action sequences helped cement uh, the start of of um, Jason Statham's career so good stuff and and Statham's been around if if Statham's in a movie you know it's going to be an action movie typically and if it's a good director it'll be really good uh, action now, with Bisson in this movie, he's got another pretty face that he's introducing. He does that in each of these 
movies that he has. He finds himself who he thinks is going to be a can be a star, but that the camera loves. You know what I'm talking about here, Zach? Think about the movies that he's done. Johansson and Lucy, okay? Uh, Natalie Portman, the professional, although she was a kid mm-hmm. when she made that movie. I'm trying to think of the woman that was in La Femme Nikita, and uh, that was, uh, who, what was her name? Anna Paralod was her name. Never heard of them later, all right? You'll remember Bridget Fonda did the American version of La Femme Nikita. You remember that? I don't. I'm trying to think what was the name of the, the had a different name. Okay, Bridget. I'm looking here. Uh, you know why she disappeared from the screen, don't you? She got she was in a car wreck, oh. and it screwed her back up really bad, mm. and so she couldn't uh, you know, she couldn't continue in the business. But she was really good in Lake Placid. Remember that? Yes. She was good in Single White Female, another movie she was good. She was good in Jackie Brown. But then uh, her career kind of faded off after that. And Paralod, or how do you pronounce her name? Yeah. Has she mm-hmm. done anything? Uh, let me see. I'm just sitting here looking at uh, Monkey Bone. That's a movie you want to forget if it's on your credits. <laughs> Um, she did In Their Sleep in 2010. That was the latest movie, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay, she did The Marquee of Darkness. That's from 2011. Okay. And uh, she did What the Day Owes. Well, let me see the full title. What the Day Owes Tonight, and that's from 2012. That's about it. That is it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not much. Not much after the film. Uh, Point of No Return is the movie that I'm thinking of with the Bridget. Uh, Fonda. That was back in 93. And it was yeah. nothing more than the Americanized version of of uh, Fim Lakita. So that that's uh, that one too. So, she, you know, this is Bison's typical formula. Uh, KGB, CIA, lots of twists, lots of double cross, triple cross, quadruple cross things going on in the movie. Uh, I give it a B. I think that you'll enjoy it. I was looking at uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and I don't pay much attention to critics anymore. Yeah. For the reason being that, as I read some of the critical uh, people, they said, Bison's a one-trick pony now. Okay. Okay, so you got a problem with the director. Yeah. You know, if you got a problem with the director, then don't don't go see his movies. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Don't go see his movies. If you're going to pan the movie... Just because this guy directed it doesn't matter how hard everybody else works in the movie and what they do. Right. You know, you're just going to say it's not worth going. So, you know, hey, I don't want to hear what you got to say. Yeah. You know, take your personal dislikes of a person. I mean, I remember that uh, uh, Matt was here one day and we were talking about one movie and I forget now what the movie was. Okay. The the guy, this uh Merchant or whatever his name is, I think he's from Orlando, wrote the review, and he started talking about how he did not like the lead actress. Oh, um, I know which movie you guys were talking about that day. And he did not like her, and because he did personally right. didn't like her, yeah. 
then you shouldn't go see the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, no, no, I don't care if you don't like her or not. How's her work? Her work was really good in right. the movie. Mm-hmm. She deserved uh, better than what this guy gave her. And so, you know, I just, you know, you're supposed to take your personal feelings about people out of it. If you can't, turn down the movie. Right. I mean, there's some actors that I wouldn't go see just because of their politics. They've been, you know, it's, I don't mind people being politically active, but when you're raising millions of dollars for a candidate who I think is scumbag, I probably don't want to see your movie. <laughs> and that's exactly how it, how it is. But this is a fun movie. This new Sasha Luss is her name. And evidently, she played a small part in uh, Bassan's movie, um, what was it, Valorant? Oh, Valerian and the Lost, what was it, Lost 1000 Cities or whatever? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. However that went. Uh, it could have been a much better movie, I think. That movie was so bad. It, it You know, I, I like Cara Devano. You Devenu. do? I think she's all right. She's interesting. Okay. Just because of the way she looks and the way that she acts, I find her interesting on the huh. screen. Uh, but uh, why sh- they paired her up? With that guy that yeah. was in that movie, that Dane DeHaan, yeah, yeah, th- th- that was just a terrible job of putting two actors together who it just seemed like did not like each other, not at all. In there, Dane DeHaan, yeah. What what other movies has he been in lately? Well, see, I saw him in a movie three years ago called The Cure for Wellness. You talking one? Of the, I mean, one of the weirdest. Yeah, movies. I remember that. Yeah, you know, but he was great in that movie. I think he's perfect for those type of movies. Yeah, he's going to be out. To, he's playing Billy the Kid this year. Oh, he is. He's out as Billy the Kid Bonnie, and mm-hmm. then he's got. Uh, he's on, t- uh, I guess, on television or Netflix or someplace in zero zero zero. It's uh, eight episodes right now of what they got. It's uh, about uh, shipments of cocaine being smuggled from South America to Europe. It's in post-production right now. I don't know who picked it up or who's going to be, whoever it's going to be, but you can watch for that for him. Helen Mirren is in this movie. She's excellent. See if she doesn't remind you. There's two characters she reminds me of in this in this uh, movie, and um, you're going to like this. Helen Mirren is in it? Yeah. She reminds me of the uh, the East German woman in uh, to Russia with love that okay. had that had the had the uh, the blade in her shoe when she was fighting Sean Connery. Remember yeah. when she's trying to kick him? Okay, so she reminds me of her. Then she reminds me of the lady in The Incredibles, the little lady. Really? Yeah, yeah. I love it. I'm going to swear when you see this, you're going to say, Ellswick's right on this one. <laughs> That's funny. It's really. <laughs> That's funny. It is. It, well, it is funny. And Luke Evans is in this. Luke Evans is, just hasn't got, he hasn't found his vehicle yet other than Lost Kingdom. Right. The, la- the last kingdom, pardon me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really good in that. Sooner or later, he's going to get a shot at something that is going to cement him with with movie fans out there. I got you. He's 40 now. I didn't know he was that old. Yeah. I mean, he did the Dracula movie, which was okay. It just didn't ring true to me about how they 
brought forth Dracula and all mm-hmm. that. So I I really liked him in The Last Kingdom. I just thought that was really a good series on on television. Didn't you see him in um, what was the movie that came out a couple of years ago? What was it? Um, Beauty and the Beast. He played it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Not a big not a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. No. He play, He was playing kind of the anti Luke Evans in that movie. <laughs> that's funny. You know what I'm saying? He was he was trying to make sure he didn't get typecast. I'm sure that's what that was. I think the guy is. Uh, I think he's going to hit one sooner or later. Really is. Yeah. So um, go see it. You tell me what you think about it when you see it. I'll put you on on the air with me, and I'll just say, okay, what you think of it? I'm just going to tell you, it's if if you're going to get upset because you go and you go, well, this is like what Bison always does. Bison does what Bison does. Mm-hmm. You know, he does. He likes to do spies. He likes to have pretty women play his spies. Yeah. He likes the CIA and the KGB to be at each other. And he kind of throws it, you know, all kinds of twists in it. Uh, and he gets he gets pretty people to play his part. <laughs> That's what he does. Yeah. I mean, look, Lucy would have been as good, would have been a great movie, even if he didn't have Scarlett Johansson in it. But if you got the chance of Scarlett Johansson doing the movie. Take it. Take it. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Yeah. And it was a fun movie. It was. A, did you like that movie? I did. Okay. I did. So you're going to like Anna. I'm just telling you, you'll like Anna. There's a fight scene in Anna that um, make John Wick envious. Say what? Yeah. You just heard me. Yeah. There's a fight scene. In a restaurant that will make John Wick envious. It's really wow. good. And now a lot of people are saying, I've been reading some of them saying, it's got, uh, it's like John Wick and it's like Atomic Blonde. Atomic Blonde. Yeah. Because, you know, if you if you can be the first one to break through with that type of action, right. then everybody will mention that everybody's trying to follow you. Exactly. And B-Sun's been doing that kind of action for a long time. I mm-hmm. mean, how many people don't remember the transporter when he's at his house and the guy shoots the uh, the the the, uh, the missile into his house? Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, B-Sun has been doing that kind of stuff for years. And you're talking about the professional, you're going all the way back to the 90s. Natalie Portman, I think, was ten years old when she made that movie. Well, see how um, how long ago did John Wick three come out? What was it in May or was yeah, it early pre- this year, May. Yeah. So I think maybe it could be the timing of the movie coming out. Yeah. Of this, you know, it's still fresh in everyone's mind because John Wick three was over the top. You know, oh, it was, it was way over, over it was over the top. Just, the get go, you know, because but Bison might have wanted to do some of this stuff before, but thought it was too far. Gotcha. You know, the headshot stuff. That's only because of John Wick that yeah. you're showing the headshots the way they do now. Mm-hmm. And you'll see a couple of those in this movie. But it's, yeah, fun. I mean, this Sasha Luss, you know, she pulls off she pulls off these action sequences well, unlike Jennifer Lawrence in Red Sparrow. Really? I didn't think, I didn't think she was all that good in Red Sparrow. Did you? I see. I didn't. I never watched that one. Did you watch Peppermint, which came out last yeah, year? Yeah, that was a great movie. Okay. I wish we'd get a Peppermint too. I need to watch that. That's that was one. a fun movie. So now that's another movie. Who did? Who was it? Well, who it, was? Who drew? Who was in that? Jennifer Garner. Yeah, Jennifer Garner. Yes. And, and and see, I wanted to see her go back to her alias, okay, roots, and she did mm-hmm. in that movie, and she's good at it. 
So now it be it would be really nice to see him come back. All right. So anyway, it's uh, it's a fun movie. Uh, go see it. Uh, the people on Rotten Tomatoes that have seen it that are verified, you know, movie goers gave it an eighty five percent. Okay, and that's about what I would have done. Maybe a little less. Maybe. 82%. I just think people can make up their own minds a lot and they look towards Ron Tomatoes and other sites to make up their own mind, you know, and, um, and they miss out on some good motion pictures because of it. Do. They truly do. I and mean, there's no doubt about it. What was a movie just recently that had terrible reviews and you and I both went and saw it and we're like, dude, that was a great film. Um, I mean, we really... I can't I can't put my finger on it right now. Same here. And and I could I don't understand. I mean they I mean I look at, at John Wick and they gave it a 3 and they gave it a 93. I'm still beyond blown away that they did that for Keanu Reeves to be honest. Remember he used to be hated. Right. He couldn't act. He was a one trick pony. He he could only do one facial feature. Now it's like he can't do anything wrong. <laughs> it's just fickleness of people wanting to build up straw men and then knock them down. You won't be wasting your movie. Enjoy Anna. It'd be a lot of fun. But I would highly recommend that you go see Toy Story 4 first. Okay. Your kids are going to want to see it, number one. Number two, you'll enjoy it. It'd be a fun movie. It's They always make you feel good when you walk out. Anna kind of makes you feel good. Maybe not as much, though. All right, a break. The Dave Ellswick Show right here at 1011 FM. Back with you. We uh, have got to get to the news. Let's do that uh, here on the Dave Ellswick Show. When we come back, Tim Lum will be joining us sometime in the next half hour. Just got a text from him saying he was caught in some traffic. He's running a little bit behind, but he's on his way here. We haven't had him on in several months. He's been out of the state down in Texas, so... Find out what that's been all about, and then we'll talk to him about what movies perhaps that he's seen. Uh, I read an interesting article that we've got to talk about, uh, uh, Zach, from uh, Screen Rant, dealing with how important Atlantis or this ancient city being discovered in Godzilla will play in the Godzilla monsterverse. We'll talk about it. All right, so Zach, I know how much you uh, enjoyed Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I thought it was a great movie. You thought it was a great movie. Yep. One of the great parts of that movie is when they went down in the submarine. Yeah. And they were going through that uh, underwater ancient civilization. Mm -hmm. Everybody says it's uh, Atlantis. Doesn't matter, okay? It just doesn't matter what it is. It's an ancient underwater civilization. Right. And uh, on Screen Rant today, great article about this. It will probably pave the way for the discovery of even more titans, hmm. as the forgotten civilization could potentially have ties to a few classic Toho monsters. During a pivotal scene in Godzilla King and the Monsters, Monarch finds proof for Houston Brooks's hollow earth theory when they discover an ancient city deep in the underground tunnels in the ocean. This is where Godzilla seeks shelter while he recuperates. At this moment, it becomes clear that this place is Godzilla's home mm -hmm. and a place where he was once worshipped as uh, a god. So uh, 
uh, starts talking through this. And it says, of course, Godzilla King of the Monsters Underwater Civilization has drawn plenty of comparisons to the mythical lost city of Atlantis. Uh, they're pretty sure uh, that it is a, um, it's out in the Atlantic Ocean because the submarine left out from the Bahamas, if we may remember correctly. Uh, so we got this connection now. It's uh, interesting because of what it can mean for legendary cinematic universe. So here are some of Toho's monsters who could be linked to the monster versus Atlantis. In 1973's Godzilla versus Megalon, nuclear underground testing by the Japanese greatly angered the people of the subterranean kingdom known as Seatopia a place that had existed for thousands of years in retaliation. Satopia summoned their god, Megalon, to take vengeance on the humans. So Satopia also managed to acquire the help of Gigan, and it took the combined strength of Godzilla and Jet Jaguar. Boy, that's going back, man. To drive off the two monsters, forcing Cetopia to give up on their plans to defeat the surface world. Some have speculated that the underwater civilization in Godzilla, uh, King of the Monsters, is the monster versus Cetopia. If this is true, it would open the door for another movie in the series to introduce Megalon or Gigan. Megalon is a beetle-like keju. The keju, is that the correct pronunciation? Kazu? Yeah. Oh, no. You know, capable of uh, burrowing underground. Well, Gigan is an alien cyborg with hook-like blades for hands. Maybe that'll help people kind of put them in the Godzilla word world. Uh, Gigan is widely regarded as a potential villain for Godzilla 3 do his popularity with fans, which includes Godzilla King and the Monster director Mike Doherty. Might be him then. Gigan was featured in concept art for Godzilla King and the Monsters, which reveals that Gigan was originally considered for one of the titans who gathered around Godzilla in the movie's final scene. So you got all of that. If Godzilla King and the Monsters did indeed introduce Atlantis, it wouldn't be the first movie to associate the mythical island with the Toho monsters. Atlantis is the birthplace of Gamera, the guardian of the universe. Gamera is a giant turtle-like monster who breathes fire and flies by shooting jets out of the leg holes in his shell. I remember Gamma, Gamera in the movies. In the Gamera trilogy from the 90s, the Athenians were an ancient advanced race who created a species called the Gaos, and when the Gaos turned on them, the Athenians created Gamera, who was designed to be a force for good. Unfortunately, the Gaos destroyed the Athenians, but Gamera defeated them and devoted himself to protecting the Earth. I just don't know if people are ready for some of the more kind of crazier stuff. You know what I'm saying? The... I don't know if we're ready for a flying turtle yet. I mean, I, people people accept that Mothra, because Mothra has been part of the 
the mythology of Godzilla since the very, very beginning. Yeah. But I don't know if, you know, if a flying turtle is going to be able to I need to look it up. That's interesting. So, and they go into that. Screen Rant says, uh, while certainly not a household name to Western audiences, Gamera has amassed a huge fan following in Japan. Now, if they know they're going to make, you know, a gazillion dollars over in Japan, China, and that area, then it may not make any difference whether we like him in the West or not. Gamera has served as the main character, are you ready for this, in 12 movies, which arguably makes him one of the Japanese movie industry's most iconic monsters. Gamera was created by rival Toho company Daie, D-A-I-E-I, but some of his films were distributed by Toho. Like Gigan, Gamera was one of the three previously established monsters included in concept art for the final scene, so it seems possible that Godzilla may not have been the only Titan that was worshipped as a god in Atlantis. As you had Batra as well. Now, I remember Batra, just uh, a few movies, established uh, not that long ago, uh, invented a device that would allow them to manipulate the climate. Climate change, you know. The Earth acting as a sentient being created a monster called Batra to punish the people. Batra, often referred to as the Black Mothra, was opposed by his righteous counterpart. So Batra and Mothra were at each other's wings. I don't know. The most notable difference between Batra and Mothra is that Mothra is the protector of us, while Batra only cares about safeguarding the planet itself. So Mothra defeated Batra, but at a great cost. The earth was flooded, the civilization was destroyed, and was lost forever. And then a rainbow came up. No, I don't know. I just... Just saying, no one knows what happened to the city that was found in Godzilla King and the monsters were given the importance of Mothra to the monster universe. It could be that Mothra's backstory is interwoven with Godzilla's, especially since they've shown to have a symbiotic relationship. If that's the case, Mothra's arch enemy Batra could be in the picture as well. They go really deep into this stuff for Godzilla because they know that next year when uh, Godzilla versus King Kong comes out, this that movie is going to blow up the box office, oh, yes. dude. It is going to blow up the box office. They got a new story they just published a few days ago, and I haven't looked at it. I'll, I'll try to s- search it during this break and bring it to you and come back. What's King Kong been doing? Exactly. What's King Kong been doing besides growing? Right. Because he's getting bigger. He's there's getting no doubt. Big. Yeah, he's going to be big. So anyway, we'll come back. We'll talk about that. Just talking movies right now. Talking, of course, Godzilla. I mean, Godzilla is the king of the monsters. But what do you? What do we call King Kong? He's just a king. Exactly. <laughs> he's just a king. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. All right. I've got some information for you. You ready, Zach? By the way, Doherty is not directing Kong versus Godzilla. Another another director's you know, Wind Windguard or Winfield or somebody. And that and director uh, Mike Doherty shared uh, 
Here, here we go. However, as is apparently revealed in the novelization of King of the Monsters, while Kong is well aware of what's going on around him, he simply doesn't care. Director Mike Doherty shared the appropriate passage from the novel on Twitter. Mike Doherty, uh, he says, uh, here's what it reads like. I've got to bring this up so it's a little bit bigger so I can read it. Hold on, let's see if I can get it here. Come on. Thank you. He heard the call. He had heard calls before, not the enemies who killed his parents, the deep dwellers, others somehow more like him. When he was young, he did not hear them often, but in recent seasons, the calls were more frequent once he had heard one of the others near, very near the island, but it wanted nothing of him, so he did not care. But his other wanted something wanted this other wanted something something wanted him to come to hunt together and he heard responses many of them that would be godzilla calling all the other monsters to come and take a knee basically but something had changed now made him restless and made him a little angry change was not good let them stay away from him these others he did not care about their places their islands best they did not come for his he felt movement in the stone stone beneath him, and his anger grew brighter. The deep dwellers heard the call, too. The crawlers with faces like bones that haunted his sleep. They were waking as well. The quiet was over. He scratched the itch on his ribs and began to hunt. All right, so the skull crushers are going to come back, evidently in the uh, the next uh, movie. And uh, as it turns out, King Kong is just out of, uh, you know, Fs to give when it comes to the others more like him. We know from the Godzilla movies that these titans have the ability to communicate with each other. Yep. And King Kong is capable of picking up on that communication. However, he simply has no interest in it. He's happy living on Skull Island and minding his own business. It's kind of like the United States, you know, we stay around and we do our thing. And if somebody bugs us enough, we'll reach out and slap them down. Okay. Having said, <laughs> I can't get away from politics. I just can't. <laughs> Having said that, the passage also hints at what is to come. The deep dwellers, the creatures that Kong fights in Skull Island are waking up and that is going to force King Kong to take action. We also know from the post credit scene from Godzilla King of the Monsters that Kong is going to be confronted with the other Titans as well. So sitting at this battle is no longer an option. This will all lead to Godzilla versus Kong, the next film in the giant monster smashing cinematic universe. That movie only just recently finished filming and so is now involved in the significant post-production period that will be needed before the movie its screens next year with the growth of the cinematic universe concept these worlds can get quite crowded there are so many superheroes giant monsters or whatever else roaming around that we know are out there that the question of what they're doing during any given moment is a valid one it's been wondered on more than one occasion during any given superhero movie why other heroes didn't show up to help out whenever the next global catastrophe took place, and that is basically the same question here. 
I like the idea that Kong just didn't care enough to get involved in all of this. One of the difficulties in making these giant monster movies and letting us see them from the human perspective is that we can't really understand the emotions and motivations of the creatures themselves. Right. There's a little bit more on this, and I'll come back and cover that in the last segment. We still got a break here? We oh, no, that was We're done? Week. Okay. It could be the fact that King Kong just wants to be left the hell alone, and that will lead to the ultimate conflict of Godzilla versus Kong. It's not that these creatures actually want to hurt each other, but Godzilla has some massive beasts to destroy, and Kong just wants everybody to get off his doorstep. And we don't have a long time to wait. Godzilla versus Kong arrives in theaters in May. Next year. 2020. Mm-hmm. All right. You know what I wanted? What's that? I wanted the director of Kong Skull Island to do the story around the monsters because, you know, he did a great job with Kong Skull Island. Oh, did you know, a great the, job. The, everything surrounding Kong. But then you take this director who just did um, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and, you know, he can do all the action part. You know, you combine those two, and you get a pretty good movie, I believe, if those two were to work together. But we'll see, you know, how the movie plays out next year because I do kind of like King Kong having his own, you know, like I say, he has his island. He wants to be, ha- he wants his peace and quiet. He just want to live and just want to be him on his own king. I'm just saying, I don't think Godzilla would want anything to do with the skull crushers either. Yeah. That big one was a bad boy. That's true. I mean, he really, really was. But Kong was badder than he was. Exactly. And still growing. Works. Yeah, <laughs> and still growing. Yeah, he was. So the director, and I'm bringing that up right now. Okay, let's see. My fingers are too fast for my phone. It's out uh, for the new one. Yeah, Godzilla versus King Kong 2020. Do not want, yeah. And the director is Adam Wingard. Okay. Adam Wingard, the movies that he has done. Oh, no. You ready? Yeah. I see Here we right. go. Blair Witch 2016 was absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Death Note, he's done that. No. Okay, not very good. Not at all. Uh, Outcast, The Guest. Well, he did VHS too. That wasn't bad. That wasn't too, in VHS. So those were two horror movies that were pretty good. Uh, the other ones that he's done are shorts that I would know nothing about. And that's, yeah, because he's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven... Seven horror shorts that he's done. Horrible Way to Die. I'm not familiar to that. You're Next. I don't know that one. Auto Erotic. Uh, wasn't a bad movie. It was okay. Uh, six, 60 Seconds of Solitude and Year Zero. I have not even seen it. Basically, what he is known for is VHS 1 and 2. Have you seen those? I haven't. Where they watched the VHS since... It's like uh, got different stories in it, okay, kind of thing going on, uh, and then these, and then Blair Witch twenty sixteen, and then Death Note in twenty seventeen, both which were absolutely abysmal. That doesn't make me feel good about Godzilla. Oh yeah, because I mean Kong. I love the um, series of Death Note. You know, I watched that, and you know, just watching this movie, I was like, really. They really had to do that. They had to mess it up for fans. No, they did. They messed it up big time. 
I've watched that movie more than once, (laughs) hoping that I missed something the first time I watched it, and I didn't miss anything. In fact, what I got from it was exactly what the director was leading us to, and it wasn't very good at all. Yeah. Wasn't it? I think that was just that was just some stuff that wasn't good for them. But they got some good. They got some interesting. Have you seen the people that are playing in Godzilla versus King Kong? I have not. Okay, Millie Bobby Brown, of course, is back. Okay, Alexander Skarsgård is in it. Uh, Tarzan. Isa Gonzalez mm-hmm. is in it. Uh, Kyle Chandler is back. Rebecca Hall. Uh, Zai Zhang is back. Lance Reddick. You know who Lance Reddick is? Okay. Oh, like, yeah. Okay, he's the, the guy, the, the head of the motel. Of course. They keep going back to in uh, John Wick. The Continental. Yes, the Continental. Uh, and then I'm looking at some of the other people, and that's about all of them that I well, know. Well, you have the kid from Deadpool, too. He's in it, Julian Dennison. Oh, yeah, the little fat boy. Yeah. Yeah, I got him. What a stupid picture you use for yourself on IMDb. He's from New Zealand. I didn't know that. Hunt for the Wilders, people. He's got. Does he got anything new coming out besides? He's. This is be be his ninth movie. Yeah, this is his first movie. It looks like since um, Deadpool Two. Deadpool Two, yeah. Mm-hmm. Played Fire Fist. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm hearing that he's going to be in the next Deadpool. That's, okay. That's what I'm hearing. So we'll we'll have to see if if that pans pans out or not. But anyway, uh, I'm looking forward. To, I mean, this, that's my movie for 2020. I gotta I gotta be you know admit to everybody next year, the movie I'll number one movie that I will make sure I take in two big buckets of popcorn uh, with me is uh, Godzilla versus King Kong. Well, they won't have the Avengers or anyone else to compete with, you know, next year. That's true. That'll be the biggest movie possibly. Are there any Marvel? Well, yeah, now there's not Marvel's DC. There's one other. Wonder Woman will be next year too. Yeah, but that's probably going when, when does Godzilla versus Kong come oh, out? Oh, it's going to be early on in the year, May. Uh, okay. In May. Okay, that's May. I believe Wonder Woman 1984. It's going to be like November, isn't it? Isn't it going to be in the right before the Christmas season is what they're trying to do? I can look and see here. I'm going to guess between the months of August and November. Something Wonder like that. Woman. I was really saddened when I I found out that it wasn't coming out this year. Exactly. Got pushed back just like Dark Phoenix got pushed back from last year to this and year. And that worries me when they start pushing stuff back. You know what? They did push back Deadpool 2, if you remember. They yeah, I and mean, it was still good. Exactly. All right. All right. Patty Jenkins still directing. It's in post-production. It will be released June 5th. Okay. 2020. Wow. So that means just a few weeks after King Kong. That is totally right. Wow. Okay, we'll see. We'll have to find out. I I just wonder what they had to work on in that movie. This new picture they got for the for the for the Wonder Woman movie. Have you seen the one sheet for it? No, the poster. Yeah, have you Mm -hmm. seen it? I haven't seen it yet. It's on IMDb. Oh, it's really crazy looking. Wow. All right. Tim Lim joining me in the next hour. You won't want to miss that. Robert Steinbach starting at 4 o'clock. Lots to have uh, talk about. Um, Politics, movies, you name it. We'll probably broach it today on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you. Dave Ellswick Show, Tim Lim. 
just texted me, said he's just around the corner. He's on his way. He'll be here in the studio in, in just a moment. So you like that poster I showed you about uh, Wonder Woman for next year for the uh, Wonder Woman 2 that's going to take place in the 1980s? Yeah, I like it. You know, just so many colors. And they're bringing uh, Chris Pine back? Oh, they really are? Yeah, yeah. He's he's he was... been He's been confirmed. He's not dead. Oh, as you know, in movies, I thought he was dead. You can uh, you can bring people back to life at willy nilly. Mm-hmm. All right. So Gail Gadot, Chris Pine, uh, Christian Wiig, Connie Nielsen's back. Robin Robin Wright is in this one. That's great. Now she died in the first one. Remember? See, I haven't watched the Wonder Woman in a long time. Uh, Pedro Pascal is back in it. That'd be fun to have him back in it. Yeah. And uh, I don't see anybody else that looks. Ravi Patel, he's in it. That's kind of cool. They may bring Robin Wright back in some situations where she's thinking back into yeah, her maybe, past. Yeah, maybe kicking back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, remembering somebody teaching her something or whatever. Exactly. I don't see anybody else in this that is in any of, of I, I This sounds terrible, but. They're not a big name actor or actress. All right, just so that you know. But Gadot is back. Pine is back. Wig is back. Connie Nielsen is back. Robin Wright is back. And Pedro Pascal. Uh, they are all back. Yep. So those are people that uh, we all know from the first one. I was just talking about, oh, Tim, it's good to have you back. Uh, is that uh, the new poster the one sheet they got for uh, uh wonder woman it's psychedelic dude i gotta i gotta get that to hang up in the studio <laughs> i need to talk to matt now and say when that show that shows up i want that for the studio just make sure you don't have any guests tripping on acid when they look <laughs> at it yeah it's it definitely if it's from, from the 80s it would it it that might have looked what it looked like back in andy warhol's day but you know i think maybe that's a much all right. Anyway, I went and saw Anna last night. Are you a Bison fan? Sort of. He's hit. He's hit or miss. A lot of things that he helms aren't that great, but I think a lot of the ones that he puts a personal touch on tend to be a lot better. Well, he's he's the director on this. All right, and here you go. If you like the film Lakita, all right. If you like the professional, if you like Lucy, if you like uh, you know Transporter. You're going to like this movie. It just seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, it just seems to be like all of those movies are in the same vein of like mysterious young woman. It's exactly <laughs> the same. He's never changed his storyline. Uh-huh. It's it's basically been the same. This new Sasha Luss uh, that he has playing the, the main part, he had her in uh, Valerian or whatever as a minor part, mm-hmm. and he's picked her up and... Gave her a star role for this movie, but it's in that vein. I mean, you got some young girl in poverty, snatched out of it, taught to be an assassin, blah, blah, blah. But that's all right. I like the storyline. I enjoy the movies. Yeah. yeah. And Basan, he's good at that. He keeps his storylines pretty simplistic. He knows he's trying to deliver on action. on action, and uh, honestly, sometimes we need that. Actually, a lot of times we need just yeah. that. No, no, no politics, no agenda. Just tell a good story. I had a, I don't know if you've seen it yet or not. I'm guessing you have, knowing that you're a movie file. But 
John Wick Three. Oh God, what a great movie! <laughs> I don't, I don't even know if an action movie I've seen in the last five years will come close to beating that. I was at the end of, edge of my seat. It's a fantastic. The next picture. one. The yeah, next the next one. one. Yeah. The next one's going to be fun. I, I don't know how they're going to, you know, top themselves in that in in the next movie. So I have a funny story about John Wick Three. So I saw it at a screening in uh in Texas and okay. we have, we have a friend it's a very small town so we have a friend who is a manager and he runs a projection so we said okay. well we're going to go to the midnight screening he invited us over and in that first 10 minutes when they have the knife fight scene yeah. where they're all just throwing knives at each yeah. other and just pulling them out and throwing them i was laughing so hard i was telling him like stop the projector i, I can't I, take I, it i can't take it i'm laughing so hard this is one of the greatest fight scenes i've ever seen but i i will say the the movie that I think has the greatest amount of action in movies is a Thai movie I've seen. They come at night. Have you seen that? Yes. In fact, I saw it the day after you recommended it, and I recommended it to everyone. Is I know. that not an incredible movie? It is, and it's very um, – I don't know how to describe it. It's very visceral. We'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I'll say so. You think that you know when you see – they say graphic violence – this is like graphics to the tenth degree violence. I mean, when you take billiard balls as a weapon, yes. you, I mean, billiard balls and teeth don't go well together. Not a no. winning combination. No. But good for good for violent spectacle for sure. But that guy that was from uh, the raid and Iwo all that, Kais. that dude is great. Yeah, and here's the best part: if you if if you're listening to our movie talk and you watch this movie, so it's called They Come at Night. The good thing is, after you're done watching it, it recommends his whole filmography on Netflix. Yes. So I just watched every single one. Well, he's good, man. Yeah. He's, he's really good. Now, the other the other movie that I, I I don't know if if Zach, you've seen it yet or not. I Saw the Devil. Have you seen that Korean movie yet? I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it's it. It's good. I've seen it. Oh, you've seen mm-hmm. it. Because it's recommended, too. It's awesome. Yeah. It is a freaking awesome movie. Look, look up. I'm just going to tell everybody, though, if you're weak of stomach, leave both those movies alone. Just telling you, leave them both alone. But see, after watching the movie you suggested to me on Netflix, the one you're just talking about, I needed a long break from it. Basically, <laughs> I'm like I need a lengthy break because I mean it was disgusting. Yeah, well, I'm gonna tell you, ties, man, they don't they don't mess around. Yeah, a lot of a lot of red paint was shed <laughs> for that movie. The fight, you know, the fight scene inside the uh, butcher shop. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, I was just like, I just I texted Dave immediately after I saw one of the kills. I was like. Dave, what did you give me to? <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing movie. It really is. But they, they give you what you want out of action. That's for sure. Yes. As in, if you're just paying for that, you're going to get it in spades. But if you want a story and you want action, I saw The Devil as the movie. Mm-hmm. That movie's got some twists to it and stuff. It's crazy. Well, see, I think that's how John Wick, the next John Wick movie, is going to surpass this one. It may not be the action, but it's going to most likely be the story, you know, how they right. top it off. Yeah. It could be that. I mean, and my only disappointment with John Wick 3, so I watched the the first two John Wick movies before leading up to 3. Good. Here. And I, I saw that 3 was definitely action-heavy. And as far as, like, developing that world and how things work, you didn't really learn much outside of kind of the rules of if you want to get back in the game, this right. is what you have to do. There was a lot of double-crossing. Honestly, that didn't see coming because I, I thought that certain people were loyal to the end. Uh, and so we're just going to have to see how that plays out in, in Part 4. But, you know, for... A third movie, if they wanted to go out all out with the action, I mean, I was all for it. Well, at yeah. the end of the third one, you got to ask yourself, is this real or is this kind of a setup 
mm-hmm. to right. take on the big group of people that are over everybody. Right. And I feel I feel that I don't think it was a setup because there was a genuine surprise on his face when uh, the lady was like, hey, the body's missing. And yeah. the guy's like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, wish, <laughs> I wish she would have died. I mean, come on. It left her. I just get rid of that character. Well, she, she was so needs, annoying. Well, she was annoying because she had no character. Yeah, she was kind of a, a finger wagger. You yeah, know? she just showed up. She's basically like the auditor or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, she'll get hers in the next movie. Nix her, just get yeah. rid of her. Done. <laughs> she'll get hers, I think. For I think sure. the thing that shocked me most about that movie though is I did not think I was going to enjoy Halle Berry's role. Oh, oh she was fantastic. That was a great scene when it was just the two of them and the two dogs yes. just going at it. I just thought this is this is great. This is, yeah. the, this is some of the best filmmaking I've ever oh seen. Oh my! Goodness. It was really good. I mean, I that guy, that the choreographer is the the choreographer of all the action. That dude is awesome, and he's coming back for Atomic Blonde too as well. Really, the same guy? Yeah. Okay. That did Atomic Blonde, and I thought Atomic Blonde was wonderful, mm-hmm. I, and just enjoyed every moment of that. I really enjoyed it when I I learned in behind-the-scenes story that when Charlize Theron were fighting on the stairway, first of all, I learned something. They went in, and that all looks like regular stairs. Yeah. Those stairs are covered in foam rubber mm-hmm. and then painted to look like the regular. I I thought they wow. were doing stuff on the stairs themselves. They don't. They. I wondered, how do they protect themselves, right? Yeah. Anyway... The part where the guy hits her and uh, in the camera shot, her head snaps around and you see the tooth fly out. Mm-hmm. That was really her tooth. Really? They knocked the tooth out of her mouth. Yeah. Oh, wow. It wasn't supposed to happen. They took her to the dentist. The dentist put her tooth back in and she showed back up on uh, set and shot the rest of the day. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was her money behind that movie, so I guess she didn't want to lose her money. So Hopefully her dental insurance was good. Yeah, I would hope so. That was a great movie. I loved it. All right, so I had Mark in a couple of weeks ago. Did you? That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, we had him in a couple. Well, I knew that he liked Godzilla movies. Oh, my gosh. So I, want, I wanted to see if he enjoyed King of the Monsters. He loved it. Oh, yeah. He and I, I mean, I loved it. Uh-huh. I mean, I... There's so many things about that movie that I love that I can't really, if I start talking about it, we'll hit 6 o'clock and I'll still be talking about it and you'll be gone. Uh, the The way they used the uh, the old theme songs and everything else mm-hmm. in those that movie was just spot on. It was excellent. So, Did you like it? So I have to tell you a little backstory. Okay. Uh, I don't think it matters if I liked it or not because when I watched the movie – I knew that Mark, he's a huge Godzilla fan, has right. seen every single movie, owns every single DVD. Oh, I didn't know that. He, and he and there's times where it pains me because I can't have the same conversation with him because he's on a completely different level. My knowledge of Godzilla is literally the cartoon, uh, the Matthew Broderick movie, 2014 Godzilla. Oh, again, and so, you don't even have the good Godzilla I don't even have movies. the good stuff. So I watched this movie and I leave the theater and I'm kind of confused because I'm like, I feel like I should like this movie, but I feel like I'm missing out on something. And so I, I text Mark, and uh, it was it involved an expletive, so I'll, I'll keep yeah. it simple. I said okay. I just texted him once, and I said, "Tell me something. Is Rodan supposed to be a sissy?" And he texts me back, and he says, 
do not say anything. I will talk about it when I see the movie tomorrow. Oh. And so I talked to him the next day, and he said, that was it was so great. Like, they, they had so many uh, Easter eggs and throwbacks to classic Godzilla yeah, movies. Yeah, they did. I feel like the people who made that movie, they didn't care if they were people like you who hasn't really known about the franchise. They made it for people like me who love the franchise, yeah. and you could see all the craftsmanship that goes into it. So my when I tell people... Do I love it or hate it? I was like, to me, it's more like an academic test. I would uh-huh. say that it's a good movie because the people who are genuine Godzilla fans, they loved it. Oh, and then, it's whereas, wonderful. Whereas me as an outsider, I think I can appreciate it. Um, I just think that it would take me some time to actually go through a catalog of Godzilla movies to see where they were going with well, it. Let me warn you. Okay. Do not go back the 1960-whatever it was, and see King Kong versus Godzilla. It's too late. <laughs> oh, you already watched yeah. it? God. Which version? There were two versions. Yeah, the one the, the one when they bring him in on the helium balloons. On the balloons. helium balloons, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then he, the part where they're fighting, and, and and this is when they were, and Mark and I talked about this, but there's, there's Godzilla movies where they did it serious. Then there was Godzilla movies that is like puffing stuff or right. something like that. And uh, the Puffin Stuff version of King Kong versus Godzilla, where he slides down the side of the mountain and gets up and he's rubbing his butt and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget. I was just a little kid when that came out, and I saw it in the theaters. Uh-huh. And I was so disappointed right. that it wasn't really serious, serious yeah. you know. So you can probably figure how excited I am that next year they're going to really do it upright. Although... We just talked about the director, mm-hmm. and he worries me. Oh, who's the director? It's not Wingard. I don't know who he is. So it's not the same director for uh, 2014, and it's not the same director for no, King no. of the Monsters. No, this is the guy who did VHS 1 and 2. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and did, uh, what was the other one? Oh, he did, um, what was uh, what was the movie that made a gazillion dollars? They had him out in the woods or whatever and followed The Blair Witch Project? Yeah, he did Blair <laughs> He did the 2016 Blair Witch. Oh, no. Yeah, so I'm oh, no. I'm really worried. Yeah. Yeah, they're and, in post-production now. And that, uh, Yeah, and we should be worried because this is it. Like, this is the movie that the whole MonsterVerse has been leading up to. And, I mean, so I think people, like, if you look at the critical score for King of the Monsters, it's not that great. But the people who loved, that, who loved it loved it. And even, like, guys like me... Uh, I think there was one message that came across pretty well. Like everyone who saw that movie, they loved Mothra. Like it oh, didn't matter. Mothra's a great character. Yeah, it didn't matter if you know Godzilla or not. You left that movie theater thinking to yourself, like, I like that moth thing. What's, like, what's funny is that they got around the two twins. They did, yeah, pretty nicely because mm-hmm. I that was the thing I kept telling my wife. I said, I don't know how they're going. Are they going to actually have them on screen singing Mothra? Right. You know, I, said, I just. <laughs> I said, I don't think people are going to be up for that, uh-huh. you know. Now, I just read about uh, Screen Rant, wrote a long, long mischief about what was that civilization that they mm-hmm. went through going to find Godzilla under the ocean or whatever. Atlantis. Down one, yeah. And they said, it could, you know, it could be Atlantis. It could be Cetopia, which uh-huh. is, exists in the Godzilla universe. And then... They start talking about all the different titans that could come out of that. And one of them is Gamera. And I went, Gamera will not play in our in our culture. Mm-hmm. A flying turtle with, you know, jet engines coming out of his armholes is just not <laughs> going to play well. Yeah. You know, 
However, I didn't realize how big Gamera is over in Asia. Yeah, he's huge. It's monster. Pardon the pun. Monstrous. I mean, he <laughs> he literally um, he's got twelve movies. Mm-hmm. I have seen one movie with Gamera in it, and that was enough for me. Mark so. loves Gamera. Does he really? Yeah, he likes he likes Rodan too. He likes. Oh, these I'm kind of, big Rodan fan. Yeah. You know, I didn't think they did him. They didn't have him in enough enough movies, just of him. Mm-hmm. They had the one, you right. know, movie, and half of that is when he's just a slug running around in the cave. Yeah, and and one thing about like, I liked about Godzilla came to monsters. Mark didn't pick up on this so much, but I did. So my fear of it was it was going to be kind of this PC SJW type movie, and Ooh, I was uh-uh. like, it was the complete opposite. I mean, like. There, there were, in my opinion, there were some pretty obvious, like um, whether it was intentional or not. There was some very overt Christian symbology in it. Oh, we talked about that. You had like King Ghidorah. He is, he's like, he's this bright creature from another world, you know, who falls to earth. Mm-hmm. They have him juxtaposed with, you know, um, the cross. The cross. You Looked had a scene right out of the Exorcist. Right. In fact, you had, uh, you had Godzilla who dies. Yeah. And he goes into a slumber. He literally mm-hmm. descends into an he underworld. He rises again. He rises again because of the sacrifice of a man. Mm-hmm. And then he rises again and he beats them. And then at the end, like everyone like bows down to worship him. And I was like. Okay, I did not see that coming, and I was like, "Please tell me I'm not crazy that that is not that was not intentional." Because I think that it was. Oh, it was. Yeah. you couldn't have done that and not have meant to do it. And the other thought that, thing that I thought was interesting, I talked to Zach about this, and that was how they made the ecologists, the uh-huh. environmentalists, the look guy. like a, well, they were bad guys, and they they sounded like a bunch of nut jobs, uh-huh. right? You know, and. That's the stuff that people are saying about uh-huh. what's going on now with the world. Yeah. No, precisely. And so the more I, I dwell on the movie, the more I appreciate it. But I think it, it takes – it looks like a dumb monster movie on its surface. Mm-hmm. But the more you actually chip away at it, it's like an onion where you peel, peel the layers off. And you realize there's actually more depth to it. Than well, see, that's what you know and I know is that whether it's a, a horror monster movie or it's a science fiction monster movie – there's always a secondary me- message to those right. movies. Always. The good ones, at least. Yeah. They all typically have a, are a metaphor or a reference to something, whether it be subconscious or something that is an undercurrent of culture. It's there. Mm-hmm. It's good. Okay, we'll come back. We'll talk more. Tim Lim, back in the studio. I'm just going to refer to him as the doctor of comics from now on. <laughs> I like it. Thank yeah, you. The doctor of comics, Tim Lim, here on the Dave Ellswick Show. That's edgy. All right. We're back. Here on the uh, the Dave Ellsworth show, I got to watch that last one, but I really, I almost, I felt almost guilty of watching Good Omens. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's just, I'm usually not, you know, because I can I can read right through that crap, and but uh, when I you know just the anti-Christian feel of that show it, it feels almost like it's demonic to me well, so this is a good opportunity to bring this up but like right now um douglas Ernst, who i had on the show when i was hosting keep your thought okay yeah I we got to come back from news we already run through a half hour bro oh wonderful all okay. right we'll be back after the news here on the dave ellswick show tim Lim, mr or not mr doctor <laughs> he's more than a mr doctor comic is with us we'll be back with him all right back with you Wanted to share something. Zach, I want to share something with you. Let me see if he's over there. Well, he's talking. He's got some. I got something for you. Something that you need to do when you go home. 
Do it before midnight, all right? Today is the summer solstice. You didn't know. Today's first day of summer. Get an egg out of your uh, out of your refrigerator. Sit it on the point of the egg, and it will stand up. This is the only day it will do that. It's a scientific fact, the rotation of the earth or something. But it will stand on its end and will not fall over. It's very cool. You know, get yourself a girlfriend and show her that trick and say, look how powerful I am. (laughs) (laughs) What you do is you do it at 11.59. Yeah. And then let her try it at midnight. (laughs) Yeah, there, she can't do it that way. Yeah, do it that way. You do it, do it like at uh, 11.59. Show her you can do it. And then at midnight, let her try to do it. And it'll just keep rolling over. It won't stand up. (laughs) <laughs> that's good i like that i like it too the yeah. doctor of comics bring this up today you i know we got other things we're going to talk about sure about your friend but you got it what have you been up to it's like you've been gone forever oh it involves my friend <laughs> one of, yeah one of my best friends is gone and i can't yeah. you know well so um i've been gone for seven weeks i've been in texas with my wife yeah i've been doing the same thing i normally do here which is drawing I've actually been working on a book for two and a half months, drawing that. I'm, I actually just finished it today. How does this work with your other gig? I took a sabbatical. So oh. I've, been, I've been off for a semester. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then uh, we'll see. I don't know if I'm coming back in the fall or not. Things are going pretty good right now. We ran that other campaign, uh, the Walmart campaign, which is the sequel to My Hero Magademia. Mm-hmm. The books actually came in early. We got done way ahead of time. We said that we would have the books ready by August. Right. We have them as of last week, so they're in. And they go shipping, uh, I think, on Monday. Fulfillment's already packaged, everything ready to go. So that was exciting. So wrap that up. So that puts us at three Busy books. Boy, yeah, three books for the year. Because after the book I'm working on right now, which is Soul Finder, the next book we're working on is Black Ops 2. And I'm going to start that immediately as of tomorrow. And then it's just work, 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 work. And our goal, Mark and I, our goal is to have three to four books done a year and get them all fulfilled and out in time. So that's what I've been doing. So when are you two, are you, are you talking to anybody about bringing some of this to animation or to, mm-hmm. you know, live action or anything? We have, so I have a business partner in Texas and he's interested, but the way that Mark and I are seeing it is comics are a medium where there's, there's a power in that form of storytelling. You know okay. how, for example, for a movie, before, <laughs> before the dawn of uh, the internet, before People picked up on these franchises and made movies out of them. You would watch a movie like Jaws or Jurassic Park. Was there, was there, time, was there ever a time <laughs> that it was like that? Yeah. For, for, yeah. When I was your age. So there you go. You would have these movies like Jaws and Jurassic Park. And what would people always say? They'd always say, how does it compare to the book? Oh, yeah. And typically, if it's a masterpiece like a Jaws or a Jurassic Park, there's, there's pluses and minuses. Because, for example, the book. Uh, Crackton can talk about what's going on in the character's head. Sure, you can, you can, he can spend some time on the fine details. So there's some perks to reading something as opposed to seeing on the screen. Okay. Comics are the same way. There's ways that you can you can take the medium and utilize it to the best of your ability to manipulate the story itself. And so, what Mark and I are trying to do is we're trying to basically capitalize on that, create comics that utilize it. And so we're not worried. A lot of our friends are concerned about. I want that Netflix deal. I want the movie deal. And that's fine. But that's not what we're trying to do. We want it so it's like, even if there was to be a cartoon or something down the line, people would always be like, 
cartoon's good. You really need to go back and read the book because well, that's the way something. I do with Stephen King, his early works. Okay, because uh-huh. I now he's so politically bizarre that his books suck. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, they do. But a, a book like The Stand, mm-hmm. you have to. I don't know why HBO has never talked to somebody about doing a long running series of right. that because. There's so many characters with so many interesting story arcs that that would be a great one to do. Uh-huh. But uh, nobody's done it that way. They try to cram it all into like three hours or something. I did, they did it on TV, but they didn't do it justice. Well, it reminds me of, for example, you know, Watchmen in the, in the comic. Yes. It, in the issue that focused on Rorschach's origin. This is interesting. If you read that book from the front page to the back, mm-hmm. halfway through the book, it is a form of symmetry where it's mirrored. So it is a roar. It is a, a, like a, a, a Rorschach, it's a Rorschach test. test. Something okay. you can't replicate in a movie right. unless unless you're a aware of it or you spent the time to actually condense that portion into something that could be filmed in that way. But that's another form of the medium being able to to do something that you can't do, uh, you know, in film. That's pretty cool. I it didn't is. even know that. So what we're doing right now for Black Ops is um, I have a business partner. We have some. I can't announce it right now, but we have something pretty big that we're going to announce in August. And uh, right now we're just focusing on the books. He wants to expand and do that. And I told him, I said, you know, you have the capital. Go for it. You can go for it if you want. In the meantime, Mark and I, we just put our heads down. We just keep on working. And that's what I like to do. Okay. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Keep our nose to the grindstone. So I'll tell you about, so my friend, um, yeah. we were talking about Good Omens a while ago. Yes. And so the book I was working on right now, it's live on Indiegogo. We passed our goal as of Sunday night. So our goal was $10,000 and we're now at 12000 Good. With 28 days left in the campaign. But it's called Soul Finder. And it's uh, my friend, he works for the Washington Times. He's a, uh, he's a journalist and he's a Catholic and I'm a Catholic. And so he wanted to make a comic about... Um, basically, like the special forces of exorcists, and one of that sounds so cool. <laughs> well, one of our one of the the questions that we got, we've done a lot of podcasts and stuff. Is they ask, well, what do you think the benefit is in having two Catholics work on it? And we both echoed the same sentiment, which is anytime you have fiction now that involves priests, especially Catholic priests, it's so predictable what you're going to get. I mean, like we were talking about off the air, good omens. Anytime you see anything involving religiosity. I don't even have to watch it. I already know what they're going to do. Okay, so let me ask you, have you brought up like your priests are going to have bandoliers of holy water <laughs> and things like that? They are former military. So it's I'm about, just saying. It's about, it's about priests who are recruited into an order of exorcists, but they have to have law enforcement or military background. And the reason why is because they fight an, or, an ancient order of demons that go into your mind to try and mess with you. Yeah. But because people in combat have seen things that – ordinary humans have not they're mentally prepared for it and because Dude, this the, sounds great i'm kind of li- i'm liking yeah this. and so it's soul finder you know it's on indiegogo for people who are listening if you want to check it out we're really happy about it we just already breezed through our goal but soul finder you know it's written by two guys and we said here are the things that people predict whenever you have anything involving uh clergy or anything religious they're going to make fun of christ yes. they're going your priest is going to be an alcoholic a womanizer a pedophile yep. And it gets to the point where it's like, you know, if there's a bishop or a pope, you know, they're going to be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that this doesn't happen, but right now it's predictable. Not only the bad guy, but they work for the the, the dark side. Right. They work for the source of evil. And yeah. so 
the book itself is actually we're not trying to proselytize. We're not trying to convert people to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. But go back to The Exorcist. You can enjoy that movie even if you're not Catholic because you have the, the example of Father Karras and you have his mentor and they're, they're just strong characters. And in that world of The Exorcist where you have priests fighting a supernatural evil, there are rules you play by. And those are the rules that make the movie and enrich it based on uh, the story. And so that's what Doug – uh, wants to do with this book and so that's what i've been working on for the last two months it's a 56 page book we're expanding it to 60 let's see five, five six seven 64 pages so we're adding a little bit more content to it so that's what people are going to get but 64 pages pretty solid storytelling okay so what some of the special things you get if you get involved with with uh, putting some money up it's a lean campaign so we actually okay. we actually price it for what the book is worth uh-huh. and uh the only perk that we have available for it really is you get a card like a uh a trading card where the art's by Dave Dorman. It's actually gold leaf stamped, so it's nice. It has a prayer to St. Michael on the back. So it actually has a utilitarian purpose if uh, you're prone to prayer. If you're not, it's just a really neat thing to have in your collection. But the one thing that we learn is to have lean, stripped-down campaigns where people kind of know what they're going to get. Our entire goal is to, and because we've already done it, uh, with Walmart, and we did it for Trump Space Force. Our goal is when we say we're going to deliver by this date, mm-hmm. we deliver by that date, if not before. And so, for example, for the Walmart campaign, we promised that it would be delivered by August. We're two months ahead of time. Oh, good. And so I told Doug, I said, we're going to tell people by November. That's worst case scenario. We're looking to fulfill by either September or, or October Keep the campaign nice and lean, makes it easy for our fulfillment to handle the orders uh, so people know exactly what they're going to get, and they're going to get it on time. Okay, so how much is it to get involved? I think it's $15. Wow, that is lean. Mm-hmm. $15, and then there's a shipping. I think the shipping increments are 5 and 8 depending on the two tiers. And the reason why that is is because anytime you add material to your book, you can't charge media mail rates. And so it's artificially it artificially increases the price of shipping. So that's the okay. only stipulation. All right. So you go to, what, Indiegogo? Indiegogo, and just look up Soul Finder. Soul one Finder. Word. Okay. Yeah. I will do so when I get home today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll that's make fantastic. Sense, make sure, because it just sounds good, man. This sounds very cool. Yeah, I hope, I, I hope we can deliver. It's his script, so it's uh, one of the first times that Mark Pellegrini didn't write anything that I was a part of. But Mark Pellegrini actually helped with some of the edits to mm-hmm. it. So there was a lot, of, a lot of care put into it. Ultimately, it's Doug's work, uh, and I have some input. Um, but we just hope that in 64 pages we can deliver a good story. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I don't think people understand how different it is to write for a comic than oh, yeah. it is to write for something else. Because mm-hmm. uh, you don't have a whole lot of verbiage to work with. No, you don't. And there's some rules to comics, like simple ones. And when I tell them to people, they're very fascinated because we have friends who are prose writers and script writers and they think oh, i can break into comics it's easy and it's like okay well uh what page do you have your surprises on and they're like what it's like you always keep your surprises for the even numbered pages and they're like why and i said because a comic you're essentially when you're reading a comic you're kind of the god of your own world you mm-hmm. are you're in control of the flow of time right but, but time is measured by even number pages so if you're doing a horror comic you don't have your surprise on the odd number page because when you flip the book open, it's spoiled for you. You can already see it. You right. save your surprise for the even-numbered page so that when they flip it, they can see it on the other side. Yeah, Mark was talking about that on the show one time. Uh-huh. And he said, you have to drive—maybe it was Chuck. Chuck Dixon Chuck, was on. Yes. Because he said, you must drive the, the, the reader to the next 
page Correct. over. Right. And you said you got to have, as soon as they turn that page, it better be something there that really sucks them in. Right. It's this kind of um, sloping uh, phenomenon that occurs whenever you're doing it. Another one is uh, we're friends with uh, Aaron Sparrow. He's the writer for the Darkwing Duck comics for Boom Studios. And he gave us another pointer. He said it's called page seven surprise. Page seven surprise means that <laughs> if you have an action comic yes. and you don't have an action scene by page seven, it's going to fail. And the reason why is because readers have limited attention spans. Uh, we can't help it, but psychologically, if nothing happens by seven pages, the reader gives <sighs> up. Yeah, huh? Yeah. A sigh, and then it's like, this is boring. And yeah. They ditch it. You're yeah. not getting their money's worth. I do that with books all the I time. Do it, I do it with movies. Yeah, I, yeah, that's what I liked about Anna. Anna looked like it was going to be a slow starter, but then all of a sudden, bang, you uh-huh. know, B-Son knew he had to do something, and he did. Well, it's kind of like John Wick 3. Five minutes in, he And you're into it. Well, they kills started the guy with right the book. At, yeah, but right at the beginning. <laughs> right. He's walking as hard as he can mm-hmm. because he's being chased. Mm-hmm. And, it, yeah, I that, that uh, library scene was awesome. Right. It was really good. We won't tell you about it you maybe haven't seen it but if you haven't why not uh-huh. that's the best thing i can say about that so what's your think uh, your thought about this omen show have you seen any of it no. at all? like we okay. were talking about i just saw the trailer and it I maybe saw it made me feel bad it's kind of made me feel bad mm-hmm. as i watched it i don't know it might be a spiritual thing i don't know well two things one <laughs> uh, it goes against everything i believe that's one thing one it has British people in it, and yeah. people who listen to your show and have heard me know that I have a prejudice against British television and British humor. Oh, really? In general. Yeah, I just can't stand it. Okay. Uh, I, I even have a rule when I do conventions. I don't, I don't draw any character that's on the BBC. I just won't. Like, I, I don't know what it is, but I've just always been annoyed by just British things in general. Like, it's, okay. it's not my forte. But the second thing is, like we were talking about, anything, anytime you touch on the subject of religion, it's almost always negative. gotten wrong. It's always, always negative. You're right. Uh, though, I'm, though there was one, and Mark will agree with, with me on this, there was one that surprised me that came out not too long ago, and it was called um, This Is The End. It was at Comedy uh-huh. with um, Seth Rogen. Yes. And there's a part in that movie, we were laughing our tails off because it's about the apocalypse. Right. But there's a part in that movie that's so smart as far as filmmaking is concerned that I thought these people did their homework. They might not be Christian. They might be Jewish or agnostic or atheist or Hindu or whatever. But there's a part where I told Mark, I leaned over and I was like, this is what's going to happen. Like this is what this is what makes this movie so smart. And it's the part where you have all these people and they're being taken up by the rapture because they're right. good. And all these scummy celebrities are left on earth because they did nothing good. And they're just like, oh, my gosh, like we're never going to get to heaven because we've we've been terrible. And there's and I, I I lean over to Mark and I was like, the twist is that one of them is going to sacrifice themselves. And he was like, how do you know that? And I said, because it's the idea that Christ said, he who gives his life up for a friend, right? You know, performs the ultimate act. Mm-hmm. And so that's what one of the characters does. And I thought, someone did their homework. You know, this not this might not be reverent. I mean, it's irreverent humor, but at least someone took the time out to acknowledge that. But for the most part, a lot of things that we see in fiction right now that are religious in nature, they're completely either heretical or they just spit in the face of religion. That's the entire point of yeah, their existence. They try and to think that that was done by Seth Rogen and didn't. Oh, but he would spend his time spitting on his, his own religion. Judaism. Judaism. Right. Oh, he's just terrible about it. God. Yeah. Un- what was the show that they were out on Christmas Eve or whatever? And he had that God awful, 
sweater he wore with the Star of David and everything on it. Do I don't remember? know. It uh-uh. was disgusting. I, you know, he hates his own religion, but he identifies with his religion, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of self-hatred going There's on. There's got to be. Yeah. I, it, that really does have... I mean, serious. think about that. You've seen Seth Rogen, right? You know he's... I'm talking to Zach through the window. Uh, Zach, I mean, you know that his movies are anti-Jewish. Yeah, like, you know, um, also, isn't he like part director or producer of The Preacher? Uh, he is. Yeah. Right. yeah. The Preacher, yeah. I mean, he's always I'm just been saying a- that, uh, yeah, you know, I think the doctor of comics here hit it out of the park on it. That's that's a lot of self-loathing that you're seeing there. And you see it with other religious groups. There's a lot of self-hating Catholics. I mean, we have them in the Senate. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck Schumer is one of the worst Catholics ever. Nancy Pelosi is a terrible Catholic. So is Biden. So is Biden. They should all be excommunicated. Yeah. I, that, um, that I don't understand. I don't understand it either. And that's where... That's why I said before, like, yes, you do have this trope of, like, bishops and popes being bad characters in fiction, and it's not unwarranted because, heck, I'll point, I'll easily point to a handful of cardinals, bishops, and maybe even the pope being not as where they need to be as they need to be. But it's the idea that in fiction, it's become so pervasive that that's either accepted as the norm or it's so predictable. Um, but, the, I mean, it happens on both sides. You do have this kind of self-hating that... Uh, I don't I don't quite fathom, but I think part of me also does. I think a lot of the hatred for yourself manifests into hatred for things in the outside world. And if you look at Seth Rogen, there's some movies he's done that are they're really funny. But you look at him himself and it's just like, you know, you can't help but just pray for someone like that because you just feel like there's a lot of underlying issues there that need to be addressed. Wow. Got to get a break in. We're almost done with our time. With Tim Lim today. Good thing you're going to have me next week. Yeah, but he's going to be back next week. Come on in here as uh, Robert Steinbach makes his way in. Spitting in my trash. (laughs) I spit in your trash. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The grindhouse. That's coming up in October. I'm I'm bringing Robert to see that. Oh, fantastic. He's not ever seen I Spit on Your Grave, the original. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with more. We'll finish up with the Doctor of Comics, Tim Lim, in just a moment. All right, so we've been catching up with the Dr. Comics. He's going to be with us again next Friday. We're going to have the Geek Squad in. We haven't done that in a while, so we'll have them here. Hope Mark uh, Pellegrini may join us. He will. Oh, he will? I will make him. Oh, you will make him come? Okay. Shane Stack says that he may not be here at 4, but he'll be here by 4.30. Okay. So he'll be with us as well. And there's just so much stuff to talk about. Uh, Next year, and we were talking about this earlier, Godzilla versus King Kong will come out next year in May. And uh, Zach and I were wondering when uh, Wonder Woman was going to be coming out because they pushed it back to next year. And I thought it would be like towards November. It's in June. Oh, okay. So that's kind of interesting. But there is no Marvel movie coming out next year, Mm -hmm. is there? No, I don't believe so. Yeah, so, man. And there may not be any Star Wars movies. What is a year at the cinema going to be like? (laughs) If there is no Star Wars or there is no uh, Marvel. I'm looking forward to it because one thing that uh, Mark and I have talked about was we feel like there needs to be more intellectual property that's not based on a franchise or a sequel. I think some of that needs to happen. I mean, one of the movies that we saw recently, it wasn't necessarily everyone's favorite, but does have a cult following. It's like Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim is one of I'm not all that thrilled about it. Right. But I give it credit for being an original idea, an original IP. Yeah, it is. 
that had some potential. I mean, the second movie wasn't good at all. But yeah. but it was fun. I talked to Mark about those, and I, and I, I mentioned that I'm not big, but I'm not a big Del Toro fan. I'm not either. Because he doesn't know how to follow a storyline. Mm-hmm. He's, he's visually very good. Mm-hmm. So he's very good at coming up with a world and the vision of that world and the aesthetics. But as far as the execution and, and packing it with meat and keeping up with the story – Falls flat. I mean, there's not a single work of his I can think of that I, I love, honestly, or have watched. I have, Mimic, I have saw once and forgot all about it. It's pretty it. good. I like the book. The book is yeah. really good. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to pick We'll pick this topic up next week. Sounds good. Okay, good to see you uh-huh. again. Dr. Comics, Dr. Tim Lim. He's from UA, you know, he's over at UAMS. And then you have another doctor in the house, Dr. Robert Steinberg. That's right, and he's next here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, into the 4 o'clock hour, we are catapulted like we just left the deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln heading to the shores of Iran. And just before we got there, they called us and said, the president said, it's off. And we returned to the deck. All right, just so you know, that's kind of how I feel sometimes. Robert Steinbach is here. And his opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Bowen School of Law, nor UALR, although they should, as I like to add in. And, uh, Robert, how are you today? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. This has been a good show today, man. Not every day I get to hit, have uh, Tim Lim back on as his wife is, uh, you know, working. I don't know if it's a doctorate or something like that, mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. higher form of education. I know that. She's really, really smart, and, and, and so is he. Uh, that's a it's a, they're a great couple so anyway he's back in town for a while he's leaving for the whole month of july as you heard him telling me so he'll he'll be back next friday for the geek uh show and then he'll be gone for a month and then he'll be back in august so we'd like to have him on when we can he's just such a talented guy great to have him here in the studio just like it's talented and it's great to have you on tim Lim. Before he left, he was Robert Steinbach. Whenever I hear you're going to be on, I always listen to the Dave Ellswick show. That was very nice of him. Well, he's like a lot of my listeners. They hear you're coming on. They want to hear what you got to say. Because you got important things to say. I I tell Robert this all the time. The reason I use him so much is very simple. Today, the court system play center stage a lot Mm -hmm. of times into what is going on in our country. Mm -hmm. And I need somebody who can walk us through that. And luckily he's a conservative and can walk us through it. And so I have him on. So here he is again today. I want to start off and talk to him about uh, this uh, lawsuit that's been leveled against the U of A. Bring us up to date what's going on with this. Right. So you may re- recall, Dave, we talked about on your show, uh, say, a year or so ago, that the university they had changed its uh, uh, policies regarding a tenure and the related academic freedom. Uh, and in a nutshell, as you know, professors are supposed to have an opportunity to be able to research and teach and say things uh, without getting um in trouble there you go there you go uh and it's uh, freedom of thought freedom of expression but it's particularly uh, um founded in uh, academia uh and uh, of course our contract said that 
And so the university decided to change the rules regarding a promotion, tenure, and tenure, and academic freedom, which they can do uh, theoretically for people that they're going to start hiring in the future. Right? You want to offer a different contract? That's you can right. Offer a different contract. Uh, but then at some point they said, well, we're also changing your contracts to everybody who's tenured, amongst others. And we said, wait, what? And they said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to change it because it's not really a change. And, of course, which, you know, gives rise to the question, if it's not really a change, what are you doing? Yeah. Right? Well, we're clarifying. How's this? If it's not a change and you're just clarifying, don't do anything. But, of course, they changed it and they dramatically changed it. Just to Let me clear. just ask yeah. you a question. If you tried right. to break your contract. Right. Would the unit because you didn't like what was in it? Right, would would right. they hold you? Uh, yeah. What about the terms in my contract? Right? right. The terms of my contract require me to teach a certain number of uh, credit hours, that kind and of so thing. And so, if you right, didn't I'll just do say, that, hey, what by would the way, happen? I've decided to teach half the classes. Yeah. Uh, and they'll say, "Well, you can't. The contract says you got to teach this number of credits." I say, "No, no. This is just a clarification. <laughs> See, me not showing up for half my classes. That's I mean, just that's a the clarification. first thing that went to my through well, my head. Does it work for the goose as well as the gander? Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, so um, uh, as you may recall, um, m- many, I, I, I dare say, most faculty opposed uh, these changes, and it got uh, passed through um, the board of. Um, I always forget what you call it: board of regents, board of directors, or whatever. Yeah, it is. board of regents, probably. Yeah. Uh, in any event, uh, and then uh, several of us spoke with uh, legislators and. Uh, they, uh, Kim Hammer in particular, uh, agreed to put forward a bill to avoid litigation that said, well, a contract's a contract. And remember, this is a conservative proposal mm-hmm. because conservatives believe in the value of contract. No, they believe the rule of law. Indeed. The problem is there are some conservatives who so dislike academia because it is just a, a haven for leftists that they're not particularly concerned about these contracts. And they think that these contracts are a way for leftists to protect other leftists by saying, well, we can't fire these incompetent people who aren't doing their job because they're protected by tenure. First of all, a tenure contract doesn't do that. Tenure contract says you can be fired. Mm -hmm. You just can't be fired for sort of saying things that they don't like that you're saying. Right. But if you don't do your job, you can be fired. uh, No question. So that's the first misconception. The second misconception by conservatives on this point is um, leftists don't need tenure contracts to protect other leftists. They protect their own. Yeah, they they're protect not look- themselves. That's yeah, correct. they're not looking to fire the leftists. They're looking to get rid of the dissenters. That's largely conservatives. And then there's some people who just kind of oppose uh, efforts uh, made by any given administrator at any given time. And, though, uh, and, and um, you know. Uh, kind you know, of anarchists. Yeah, or at least uh, not conformists, right? Right. Gotcha. And so uh, the legislation didn't move, uh, didn't, didn't make its way out of committee. And sure enough. Uh, um, lawsuit. Lawsuit. And to be clear, I'm not a member of the lawsuit. I know. Now, it's a lawsuit that is seeking class action status. You've you've heard a lot of times you hear on the radio or TV people say class action lawsuit. It's actually, you just say class action because action means lawsuit. But in any event, it's a cl- they're seeking 
it, for it to be a class action, but you, the court has to approve that. And that means not only the three people who are suing get to sue, but anybody who is similar to them, and in this case, any tenured professor, is going to be included in the suit unless they decide, I don't want to be a party. You can always say, I don't want to be a party. But otherwise, you don't have to do any work, and these folks are going to represent you um, uh, for free on your behalf and take care of the whole thing. Okay. So that's what that's the status of the case is they, they file the case. Uh, the university has said, I've read in, in, in numerous uh, uh, reporting now, oh, nothing about these changes uh, changes the university's commitment to academic freedom and tenure. It's rather careful, uh, but really just not transparent language. That is, doesn't change the commitment. Well, it just, of course, changes the rules. Moreover, if you change the rules, you change your commitment. So it's a kind of double speak. It's kind of saying a bunch of words and not saying anything and making oneself sound like uh, uh, this is pro-tenure, pro-academic freedom, when in fact no objective person that reads this set of rules uh, can honestly say that this doesn't weaken tenure and academic freedom. I mean, that's clear. And and as we've discussed in your show before, Dave, uh, they put in language that say if you essentially, and I, can't, I, don't, I, I don't remember the exact verbatim, but it's something to the effect of, well, if you're disruptive to the operations, disruptive to the operations, that's got conservatives stamped all over it. Yeah. What's more disruptive to a bunch of leftists than conservative ideology? I remember, I don't know how many months ago it was, but the hot word was, what was it? Collegiality. Collegiality. Right, Right. that's another way. They they didn't use that word, but they they built that in. And of course, collegiality uh, as... uh, How well do you get along with the rest of the staff? Right, meaning... How much do you agree with our leftist ideology? Uh-huh. I'll give you an example. I was eating today uh, at um, Tzatziki's, and I'm sitting there, and there's a, a older uh, uh, two women sitting together, and I hear one of them say, oh, um, um, so-and-so uh, voted for Trump. Uh, I can't be friends with her, and I told her I can't be friends with her anymore, so I'm not going to be friends. That was it. That was the whole thing. She can't be friends with her, apparently— Friend. Friend, <laughs> but because he voted for Trump. So well, so, ha- so, who was the real friend here? Uh, well, I- indeed. Now, ha- now, relate that back to academia. Well, you're, you're a Trump supporter. You're a conservative. Sorry, that's not collegial. That's hate. That's hate speech. That's hate thought, says the leftist. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, and really, anybody who's studied the issues of tenure and academic freedom, including the American Association of Law, of Law Schools and the American Association of University Professors, the latter of which has put out numerous statements going back, I think, to the 1920s, uh, talking about the importance of not having a so-called collegiality requirement, because we know what it means. It means, hey, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like what you're thinking. You're not collegial. Mm-hmm. And that's why academia these days, by the way, is such an echo chamber. That's across this country. It's an echo chamber of leftists talking to each other because they um, uh, they eschew conservatives. Yeah, because it's like watching the whole left that wants the nomination to run for president. Right. And they try to say, they try to come up with who can say the most 
radical thing from the others. Well, you heard uh, Elizabeth Warren say, uh, I won't go on Fox News. That's a hate machine. Yes. So I watch Fox News. I repeat things that I hear on Fox News because the things that I repeat are the truth, Mm -hmm. are accurate. So if she calls it a hate machine, by the way, what did she do for a living? College, university, law school professor. Yeah. She calls that hate. I repeat it. And some other leftist calls it hate. I'm uncollegial. I'm upsetting the uh, orderly operations, right? This is the problem. These these elements, like so-called collegiality, are designed to squeeze out conservative thought and conservative individuals. Hmm. All right. We'll come back. Robert Steinbach is our guest. If you want to get in on the uh, conversations, easy enough to do, 823-0965, 823-0965. When we come back, Supreme Court weighed in on a memorial yesterday, and I like the way it went. We'll talk about that when we return on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, about six minutes till the news at the bottom of the hour. Yesterday, the Supreme Court rejected a challenge to a 40-foot World War I memorial cross in Bladensburg, Maryland, after a lower court found the monument violates the First Amendment's ban on establishing religion. The bottom line outcome was 7-2 in favor of the monument's preservation, but the decision drew a flurry of separate opinions. The ruling may have far-reaching implications for government religious imagery of a certain age, the court said tearing down long-standing religious displays would sig- uh, signal hostility to people of faith. I think that was a great decision on their part, by the way. So let, let's look into what uh, the, the decision of the part, uh, court was. Alito wrote the decision. Uh, again, it was him and six other judges. Uh, this is the Peace Cross. That's what it's known as and said it should be upheld, it should stand where it is. Uh, After the First World War, the picture row after row of plain white crosses marking the overseas graves of soldiers who had lost their lives in that horrible conflict was emblazoned on the minds of Americans at home, and the adoption of the cross as the Bladensburg Memorial must be viewed in that historical context. It's become a prominent community landmark, Its removal or radical alteration at this date would be seen by many not as a neutral act, but as the manifestation of a hostility toward religion. Now, uh, Judge Stephanie Thacker, uh, who was part of the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, found that the Peace Cross impermissibly endorsed Christianity, and that's why it went before the Supreme Court. She said this, One simply cannot ignore the fact that for thousands of years the Latin cross has represented Christianity. Even in the memorial context, the Latin cross serves not simply as a generic symbol of death, but rather a Christian symbol of the death of Jesus Christ. Well, the the, the Supreme Court didn't see it that way. You think they got it right? I do think they got it right. And the concept actually is rather simple. This is an old monument, and the cross had been adopted in many contexts in government activities, in secular activities. Uh, And, of course, it came from 
the Christian cross. It came from the cross of Christ. There's no question about it. It didn't just appear. It's not the letter T. It's a cross. <laughs> that's clear. Yeah, that's good. But it became incorporated such that it was not uh, a uh, explicit endorsement of Christianity. And it's old. It's been there a long time. And effectively, the court said, look, this was not a sign saying, uh, uh, accept Christ or die. This is a symbol that relates to Christianity. It relates to, to non-religious uh, thought. It relates to the death of all those soldiers from World War I. And so, in total, we don't view this as an endorsement of any particular religion. And I think that's a, a fair reading of all of the facts and circumstances taken into well, account. Well, this goes back to... The time we live in now. Right, exactly. All right. That cross was erected in 1925. Exactly. Until, that makes a difference. Yeah. Until just recently, nobody had any problem for it at all. Right. I mean, weddings have been held there. Right. American Legion meetings have been held there. Exactly. All kinds of things. Exactly. Re, you know, religious things have happened. Right. Everything has right. been there. So why... Should we listen to anybody who says, yeah, but it really bothers me because the government's endorsing a religion? Well, to be clear and to give what sort of modest credit I will give to the losing side, ultimately it's a cross. Yeah. And their claim is, well, we all know that the cross is the symbol of Christianity and and government shouldn't be endorsing uh, any particular religion. Of course, the response, as we just discussed, was far more nuanced and sophisticated. It said, well, it was, like I said, if it was a big sign that said, accept Christ or die, n- no go. And even if it was from 1920. But uh, the fact that it's from 1920 and it doesn't come out as this endorsement of any particular religion, albeit it has the iconography of Christianity, no doubt, uh, it doesn't rise to the level of an endorsement of religion by the government. And I think the court got it right. In other words, the court looked at it and said, come on. That's, you know, that if you boil down all those big fancy words that those justices wrote, you know what it boils down to? Come on. And the average Joe will look at that and say, really, really, you want to tear down this monument to the dead of World War One? Uh, because now the way you view it now, you view it currently as an endorsement of religion. Come on. And, and that's what the court said. And good for them. Yeah, it right. wasn't put up. No. To say Christianity is, right, you know, or the, bust, right? Yeah, Christianity no. is the religion of the United States. That's no. not why it went up. It went no. up to remember men who paid the ultimate sacrifice. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. We'll come back, talk more about it, because I thought Alito was really good about he took another symbol and brought it into this to make his point. We'll talk about that when we come back. Robert Steinbach is our guest. We're also going to talk about AOC before uh, we get to the top of the hour. So stick around for that because I think Robert will have a much more nuanced view of what she said about concentration camps than I did. I think she's just a dummy. I think she's a clown. Is that more nuanced? She's a buffoon. Is that more nuanced? I'll give you some more on that. We'll talk about that in just a second. Let's get a break for the news. Let's get 60 seconds in and see what's the number one story around the country. All right, back with you. Uh, Alito drew on the uh, cathedral in Paris, Notre Dame, Mm -hmm. 
and said, look, over time, things that are religious in nature take on a public persona. That's right. And it said the, 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 the Cathedral of Notre Dame is a perfect example. When it went up in flames, it wasn't just a religious community that cried for it. It was a secular community as well. Look, Dave, our, our money says, in God we trust, right on it. Uh, and that's been challenged and defeated. Right. That's permissible, right? And the Pledge of Allegiance, actually, I think in the 50s under Eisenhower, uh, added uh, the name of the Almighty. Uh, that's been challenged, been defeated. So we we have these references to religion within secular society without it serving as an endorsement. Now, I will concede that it's not a bright line, right? It's not black. Oh, well, that is included. Nope, nope, you can't. You know, it's it's a little fuzzy at the margins. It's not like a speed limit, which is, well, if you're 56, you're over. And if you're 54, you're under. Uh, so it's, it makes it a little messier, and then which from time to time will result in litigation. But ultimately, it's the approach that is the leftists should like because the leftists are the ones that always claim to be uh, contemplative. And it's a contemplative approach to the First Amendment. Do you think that that particular, you know, uh, Read, uh, the the whole thing in between religion and state. Right. Do you think that that will ever be understood in its true historical context? Because there are people in this country who believe that that's in the Constitution. It's not in the Constitution as a Danbury letter from President Jefferson that said, no like Church of England, all right? We're not going to have like a Church of England. However... If states want to have a state church, they can. Why is it that I know this and a Supreme Court justice doesn't? Well, the the, the decision made here was correct. So I'm well, not, I agree. Right. So, uh, but yeah, look, these. Unfortunately, one of the problems is the left takes on this view. I heard Bill Maher say this recently. He said, "Well, you know, the Constitution is a living document." Oh, and it's not. You know, well, here's the thing, Dave. I, I am perfectly happy to debate my leftist uh, friends on their issues. But what the hell's a living document? It's alive? That, it's a right, just Ours a, is alive as in you can change it? Well, of course. But that's not what they, they believe, right? They, they say it's a living document, meaning the words on the page don't mean the same thing over time. They mean what our current values are. Well, then just buy a mirror. You don't need to. Now, you could write a document that says our rules shall be an amal- amalgamation of current values. Now, of course, it doesn't say that. But no. So that would, that's a, one it doesn't these, even come close no, to no, saying no. that. But that's, you know, that's the paradox that one can always create. But putting aside that, that entertaining paradox... It's meaningless. The term constitution is perfectly understood to mean a fixed document setting forth basic principles on which you can build. And by the way, as you point out, change. But if it itself is a living document, why do you need an amendment process? 
What do you need to change in a living document that reflects the current pathos and desires of society? Why have an amendment process? It's nonsense. It's, it's a, the argument is completely inconsistent with even a surface analysis of what a constitution is. But people like Bill Maher, who on some things is not dumb, but has no understanding of legal history and our system of law. says, well, it's a, it's a living document. And by the way, uh, uh, the, the Republicans are anti-science. It's just this knee-jerk adoption of the bullet points of the left without even a modicum of understanding of what it means in large measure because there's a, there, most of it, there's no there there. There is no there there to the notion that a document is a living document. It doesn't eat. It don't poop. It doesn't breathe. What does it mean to be a living document? Is Moby Dick, the book, a living document? Tell me one other document that is a living document. It's just, it's, it's absurd. All right, so let's look at the, at the uh, definition that you're talking about. Okay. Constitution, a noun. Yeah. A body of fundamental principles or established, established precedents according to which a state or other organization is acknowledged to be governed. The composition of something, the genetic constitution of a species. That's what it means. Dave, you see, you're doing what so many misguided conservatives, as I mockingly uh, accuse you, um, uh, do, which is you're looking for reason and logic and you pull up a resource, a dictionary for an explanation. Uh, Dave, you need to lick your finger and stick it up in the air. That's how you determine what's right yeah. and wrong. What's going on in the culture at this moment? Yeah, you need to hang a windsock out the window and look which way it's blowing, and then you'll know what's right and wrong. Now, here's how it seems to me. You tell me if, if I'm wrong in this. The left determines there's something out there that's important, okay? Then they go to look how to prove exactly their right. way in the Constitution. It's really, it's really, that's a wonderful insight, Dave. I mean that sincerely. The, they start with the conclusion. Yes. And then they reverse engineer the Constitution. That it was there in the right. Constitution exactly. all along. Oh, there it was. 200 years later, we discovered it. By the way, 200 years later, we discovered gay marriage. Let me be clear, because I say it every time. I know. 185 years or so, whatever it may have been, or maybe a little bit longer, they discovered the constitutional right to straight marriage, meaning neither one of them is in there. No. It's just not in there. The government should never have gotten involved. It's there, a religious thing. Yeah, there's nothing in the Constitution about marriage, but uh, it, it, these activist judges wanted to produce a political outcome, uh, which I may or may not agree with at any given point. And to do that, the only way to do it, well, there's the right. You see, we're miners, and we dig through that that coal mine of constitutional rights and discover that nugget hidden away behind the dust. It's just absurd. But it's the way they do things. That's it. All the time. That's it. And, and they see they they learned in the, by the time we got to the 50s, uh, they learned on the left that the best way to, to elicit change was not by moving it through the, the legislature because it it's spoke for the people. Right. 
All right. And so you had to convince the people that that's the way it should be. No, they went to, they packed in their belief system into the courts. Right. And went through the courts and forced everybody to follow. Right. Well, it was, let me tell you. It's it, been a very successful tactic. It was a successful tactic. It. it was a successful tactic. But I disagree with the underlying interpretation of the Constitution. And here's the thing the left never seems to have a provision of the Constitution that produces an outcome that they don't like. Because as you just pointed out, uh, quite succinctly and adeptly, they start with the conclusion and then reverse engineer the outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not law. Law is, as you aptly read, a body of rules that that tells you which way things are to come out. And guess what? Sometimes you lose, even though you want to win and you think you should win. Sometimes you lose on that set of rules. And if you if you have a body of law in which you always win... It's not a body of law. It's just whatever you say not it is. Not if you can twist it any right. which way. It's just whatever you say it is. See, lady law or whatever that statute yeah, justice. is. Yeah, justice. Lady justice, right. Is, is uh, carried out. Uh, they pull up the, they p- the blindfold blind so they can look That's and it. say, okay, how can we reword this so right. that we'll get what we want? That's exactly That's right. not law. That's not law. That's policy. That's preference. By the way, you can have a system of government like that. A kingdom is like that. The king says, I like this. That's what happened. King says, I don't like that. It's not what happened. King dies, new king comes right. in. Or new the, set of preferences. New king kills the old king. That's right. Then they change the rules. That's it. So that exists. It just ain't what we got. And All it's right. not supposed to be. We got more to talk about. That's why I like to have Robert on. Here on Speaking Truth. Speaking truth, transparency. Oh, by the way, let me remind you, tomorrow, new show, debuting here on uh, 1011 FM, The Answer. You won't want to miss it. Do we have the music? Do you have the music? Play a little music for us. This is the theme music for the show. There you go. I like this song. It's time for the Kim Hammer Show. There you go. You'll learn how <laughs> your state government affects you. I did your not see that You like that, Robert? I did not. All right. Kim so Kim Hammer is on his way to 1011, and he's going to. Here's what he's going to do Kim Hammer, State Senator Kim Hammer, believes in transparency. And just as in The Wizard of Oz, Toto pulled back the curtain on the wizard. Kim Hammer is going to pull back the uh, curtain on the way legislation affects your life. You like that? That's pretty cool, huh? That's what he's going to do tomorrow, first show. He'll be here live. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. It will be the Kim Hammer Show at noon, right here at 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, we continue on here on the Dave Ellswick Show. It is good to have you along for the ride. Uh, Robert Steinbach is here. Is 10 minutes enough for you for AOC? We can try. Okay. (laughs) Here's what AOC had to say on her Facebook page. The United States is running concentration camps on our southern border, and that is exactly what they are. They are concentration camps. And um, if that doesn't bother you, I don't, 
got nothing. I like, we can have, okay, whatever. I want to talk to the people that are concerned enough with humanity to say that we should not, that never again means something. And that um, the fact that concentration camps are now an institutionalized practice in the home of the free okay. is that's enough. extraordinary. Right, that's, that, that, that's enough. First of all, first the, of all, go ahead. She's an idiot. <laughs> okay, let's, let's start. Yeah, you the, can do better than that. Well, I can do that. I know, but I need to give you the very nuanced analysis of her <laughs> uh, speech. And, and ultimately, when I evaluate all of the elements and combine it, I come up with the conclusion, she's, she's an, idiot. an idiot. Yeah, okay. She's an idiot. And by the way, did you notice that not only does she refer to those uh, where they keep the um, uh, um, those seeking asylum as concentration camps, she uses the term never again, which explicitly refers to to the Holocaust, the Holocaust. Exactly. And she does in the context of talking about concentration camps. So, you know, if if you burned yourself in the oven three times in your house and you said, I'm never going to do that again, that's obviously not an invocation of the Holocaust. But in the context of explicitly talking about concentration camps, uh, she references the term never again. Uh, She again is borrowing, stealing. Oh, what is it? What does they call that? Um, culturally appropriate. There you go. I dare Thank say, you, you leftist. Uh, the, the terminology, and the belief system relating to the Holocaust. It's disgusting. Here's the first distinction between the concentration camps and the places that those seeking asylum are staying. If you don't want to be there, you can get up. Turn around, walk out the door, and go back to. Me- are, are you telling me that your people, yeah. did not go oh, to yeah. the concentration camp looking for work? Yeah, and you didn't know that that my relatives, my direct relatives, who were in concentration camps, my uh, second cousin, who I met, uh, uh, second cousins, he and his sister, whose tattoos on their arms I read, who were in Auschwitz. Where I went, by the way, AOC, uh, a senator from Poland invited you to come see Auschwitz. Go see Auschwitz before you talk about what is a concentration camp. So those people, don't you know, if they didn't want to be there, they could have just turned around and walked back to where they came from. And kept all their stuff. Absolutely. By the way, also keeping their stuff in the concentration camp. And keep themselves alive. Yeah. Isn't that something else? Hmm. Isn't it just the, it's talk about being blind. You know, here's, uh, let me draw a distinction for you. I I recall once in college and we were debating something in this political union that I was, and somebody was looking to solve some problem. He said, I've got the final solution for that. Well, he didn't realize that that was the term the Nazis used to kill the Jews, the final solution. Yep. And then someone kind of went over and whispered it, and he goes, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I just meant a, a, an answer that's really the definitive answer. And so right, I chose right. those words. I made a mistake. And everybody said, yeah, no big deal, whatever, no problem. 
So if she said, oh, well, these are camps, and someone said, hey, you know, you're kind of really co-opted and absconded with the terminology of the greatest horror of the last and this century, at least so far, Mm -hmm. uh, let's hope forever, right? Um, And she said, oh, I didn't mean that. I I, I didn't think of it that way. My mistake. I'm 12 years years old and a former bartender, so I'm not particularly smart about these things. Oh, did I I say that, Zach? Did that come out? Oh, I'm sorry. Send your letters to Dave, care of. (laughs) In any event, so if she said that, okay. By the way, on your show, Dave, when we've heard some, some of the horrors that came out of the mouth of um, Tlaib and, uh, what's the other one, Oman, and I put them together because they've said some really horrible things. But some of the things they said were were not necessarily anti-Semitic. And I said on your show, I said, well... They've said anti-Semitic stuff, but I'm not sure that comment was an anti-Semitic. That they were really shooting. Them, right, yeah. exactly. So because sometimes people use language, and they're just a little vague in the language, and I give people the benefit of the doubt. But she had doubled down in that statement itself, and by the way, thereafter, saying these are absolutely concentration camps. Oh, yeah. And so I'll double down. She's absolutely an idiot. She is absolutely an idiot. You know, what I find very, very sad about all of this is that Pelosi. Where's where's Nancy? Where's Schumer? Nancy. Where's Schumer? He's Jewish. Schumer is the Jewish senator from New York State. The other one's Gillibrand. She's not Jewish. Is that like yeah. one of the most Jewish states it's, in the union? It is the most. Uh, well, you know, I'm not sure if California has more. No, but I'm, I'm almost positive, almost positive that, and you know what? I will, I will say for sure. New York has the most Jews in the United States. Okay. We'll, we'll wait for the phone calls to correct me, but I believe that to be the case. Um, <laughs> Somebody's uh, got their smartphone out Yeah, right now. exactly. I'm looking it up. Um uh, just my only question is based on population size, but New York is is one of the most populated populated states, so it's got to be the and it has a huge Jewish population for a variety of historic uh, reasons, as we talked about last week. I think about different populations in in any event, and he says nothing. No, he says nothing. It's it, it it's abhorrent. The only time he endorses his Jewishness is when it will help him. Yeah. And That's you know the why? only time. And you know why this won't help him? Because she is the face of the left and of the Democratic Party. They're all scared of her. They're scared of her. And here's the funny thing, Dave. I hope she keeps talking. The yeah. more she talks, the more Donald Trump gets reelected. Keep it up, AOC. We love you. Maybe I'll send her a check to support her re-election because the more noise that she makes, the better it is for the re-election of conservatives and Donald Trump, included amongst them Donald Trump. Yeah. You were correct. I was correct. Yeah, New yes. York has. Yeah, I thought so. There was a, a question in my mind as to whether California might have more just because I think California has a bigger, bigger population, but I'm not even sure about that. Uh, overall population, and therefore, mm-hmm. if it was so much bigger... Um, they might have, uh, even though a smaller percentage still. Do you know that New York City has more Jewish people than Jerusalem? Oh, yeah. Oh, than Jerusalem? New York 1. State 1. has... 1.1 million in right. New York City and right. only 546,000 in, uh, in Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem's not that big of a Tel city. Tel Aviv yeah. is 401, Los right. Angeles 519,000. Yeah, and New York State has more Jews than the state of Israel. Hmm. 
Now, that doesn't surprise yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, you know, the state of Israel is like the size of Long Island or something. It's, it's the size of a fraction of New York State. Uh, so it's a, I think it's the size of Delaware or something like that, which is— Well, I'm going to yeah. correct you. Yeah. Israel yeah. has a population— Right. 6,589,000. Of Jews or total population? Oh, okay. Yeah, right. because it says 75% of the population is Jewish. There you go. Sounds like 4 million. United States, 5.7 million. Oh, in the whole United States? Yeah, Jewish. Oh, so New York may not have more then because yeah. they're not all populated in New York. Uh, you got 1.1 million in That's New in New York. York City. I'm talking New York State. Oh, but okay. Yeah, but the, I, I stand corrected. It must be that New York State has fewer than the state of Israel. All right. We will be back in uh, hashtag racist next hour on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you as we move into the final hour of Friday's show. Monday, uh, we'll have, of course, the man who's sitting across from me. He always joins me. There's somebody, oh, I know. You've never met my favorite libertarian, have you? Who's that? Whitney Davis. No. She'll be here t- on Monday for two hours with us. So you are in for a treat, my man. Dave, I'm in for a treat every time I come to your no, studio. No, no. <laughs> she was on my youth panel. Oh, is that right? Back about 10 years ago. I should try to get Josh Mesker to come over, too, because I know that he's right here in the area. And uh, these these kids can put you, they can challenge you, man. They're good. Oh, I have no doubt. What's really amazing about Josh was on the the, the youth panel, went on to become a, a Sleen County Quorum Court member. Oh, and cool. He works with Leslie now. Terrific. And Christopher was uh, part of that. He now works somewhere in the government. He used to work directly with the governor, but he moved to another department. Mm-hmm. And then Whitney is just a, a young lady who's just smarter than smart. I mean, really is. She's mm-hmm. uh, um, some form of engineer now. Oh, terrific. She's got her master's, got her master's faster than you normally supposed to get. She's just really smart. Terrific. She went to U of A. Right. Went to get her master's, went to USC to get her master's. You know, I may have met her on your show. That that background sounds vaguely familiar. Oh, she's so much yeah. fun. Yeah. You're going to love her. Yeah. I mean, she's a real libertarian. Before right. I, she was becoming an anarchist, and I was getting a little worried yeah. about you it. You had to rein her back yeah, in. Yeah, I had to pull the... Pull the the, the, Pull the reins back a little bit. That uh, fish hook a little harder. Yeah. Anyway, the Supreme Court today tossed out the murder conviction of a black death row inmate who underwent six criminal trials. That's amazing. Before being convicted in a 7-2 opinion, uh, it saw Trump appointed Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch split once again. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting the way this is playing out. So all you lefties out there say, yeah, you get those both. Oh, it's going to be so hardcore righty. No, no, the right goes by the law, not by ideology. That's the that's what you guys don't understand. Uh, the court voted to throw out the conviction due to a prosecutor's efforts to keep African-Americans off the jury in the cases against a guy by the name of Curtis Flowers. Now, what's the thing that we all you're supposed to be found either guilty or innocent by a jury of your what? Your peers, of Your course. peers, right. okay? That means that if you're a black guy, you probably should have a couple black people on the jury. Or at least put it this way, as the law reflects, you shouldn't be entitled, and you're not entitled, to exclude uh, black yes. jurors. So 
We follow the rest of the story. He was tried for the 1996 execution-style murders of four people in a furniture store in Mississippi. He's been in jail for more than 22 years. And he hasn't been convicted? Flowers' lawyers claimed a white... No, he was found finally guilty. Oh. But this is the death penalty now. Right, right. Flowers' lawyers claimed a white prosecutor had a history of improperly excluding African Americans from the jury. The court found that the removal of black uh, prospective jurors violated Flowers' rights. Kavanaugh, who authored the opinion, wrote that the state's relentless, determined effort to rid the jury of black individuals strongly suggests that the state wanted to try Flowers before a jury with as few black jurors as possible and ideally before an all-white jury. Terrible. Quote, the numbers speak loudly, Kavanaugh said in a summary of his opinion that he read in the courtroom, noting that Evans had removed 41 of the 42 prospective black Black jurors jurors. over the six trials. Wow. Quote, we cannot ignore history, unquote. The statistical odds of that occurring randomly are virtually non-existent. Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas, the only African-American on the bench, were the two justices dissenting from the majority opinion. In a fierce dissenting opinion, Thomas called Kavanaugh's opinion, quote, manifestly incorrect and wrote that Flowers presented no evidence whatsoever of purposeful race discrimination. I think he's reaching, but all right, that's Mm -hmm. what what Thomas said, Mm -hmm. quote, if the court's opinion today has a redeeming quality, it is this. The state is perfectly free to convict Curtis Flowers again, he wrote. Otherwise, the opinion distorts our legal standards, standards, ignores the record, and reflects utter disrespect for the careful analysis of the Mississippi courts. Any competent prosecutor would have exercised the same strikes as the state did in this trial. And although the court's opinion might boost its self-esteem, it also needlessly prolongs the suffering of four victims' families, he said. I respectfully dissent. Because there's no doubt they're going to retry this guy. Right, right. Here's the difficulty, and I have not read the case. These types of cases and this case is inherently fact dependent what exactly did that white prosecutor do in striking those black jurors now those are big numbers if he struck 41 of 42 black yeah. jurors those are big numbers now could be that all of them now the response could be i'm making this up but the response could be well all 41 of them said they don't believe anything a cop ever says well if they said yeah. that well then you would strike them because that's reason to strike that's a justifiable reason to strike. Uh, but uh, it is, um, uh, without knowing the facts, I can't speak definitively, but those are rough numbers, let me tell you. Or if they all said, I don't think a black man can get a fair shake in right. front of a jury. That would all be right. another reason to strike them. That's exactly right. But uh, th- those are rough numbers. And I will say more generally, we need, and, and you know, Dave, you and I are conservatives. We, uh, uh, when I come on your show, um, we speak about the law and we talk to your audience that is overwhelmingly conservative. Uh, there may be a few masochistic liberals li- listening, right? But yeah, they um, do. I get I notes know, from I them. I know. Uh, and, but the, the point is that 
I think as conservatives, one thing we can do better is be a little bit more committed to the notion that criminal defendants are supposed to get every benefit of the doubt. And be like, well, yeah, but then that criminal might walk free. Might. Might. But the flip side is I do not want even one innocent person going to jail. And so you can never draw that line exactly right. So do you want to draw where some innocent people go to jail or where some guilty people get off? Uh, And our system answers that question for us. I don't have to answer it. The system already answers it. And the way it's supposed to work is that uh, uh, no innocent person should go to jail. Unfortunately, uh, from time to time and then perhaps more often, courts have interpreted rules designed to protect criminal defendants who overwhelmingly are guilty. Let's be clear, uh, have interpreted some of those rules in a way that have not protected criminal defendants. And while in the end, we're not uh, perhaps losing too much sleep when someone who actually committed the crime is convicted, even with a bad rule, we should lose all of our sleep if any innocent person is convicted. And so that's why as conservatives who are and should be reticent about the heavy hand of the state interacting in our lives in any way need to be equally, if not more concerned about that heavy hand coming down uh, in the criminal justice system out of our apt concern that it might improperly convict and jail an innocent person. All right. Mr. Dershowitz. Yeah. That's just, that's what Alan Dershowitz would say. Of course. Yeah, that's consistent with his position. Yeah. Uh, because civil liberties is not left or right. Civil liberties is the Constitution. And conservatives have a better claim, as we talked in the prior segment, to the Constitution than the leftists do because we actually think it exists. Yeah, I agree. We actually can hold it up and say, that's it. Yep. I agree with you. All right. Let's get a break in. When we come back, the president called a halt to a retaliatory strike against Iran. Now, a lot of people I know were upset about that. I was not. I liked what the president said. I sat down with my, my uh, you know, the leaders of the military and talked to him. He asked a question. He asked how many people would die uh, in a retaliatory strike, and the guy said somewhere around 150 people. Now, remember, it was a drone that was shot down. And yes, the Iranians lied about that it was in their airspace. However, the president said, this is not commensurate with what the Iranians did. Killing 150 people over the downing of a drone. All right. Makes me want to think twice about it, so he called it off. And there's a lot of people who think just the way the United States thought during before we went to war with Japan, because Japan attacked us, thought that we would make easy work of the Japanese military because, after all, they were Japanese and they were subhuman. Now, for all of you who don't think what I just said isn't true, go back and read your history about what FDR and the people in his administration thought of the Japanese. Right, and just to be clear, you, your comment is not your belief. This is no. what they were saying back then. That's correct. Right. That's correct. Well, there's kind of that same belief about the Middle East, you know. Uh, what's the thing they, they they say, you know, camel jockeys and, and things of that nature, okay? That's what some people say. 
That's not the truth. Folks, when the balloon goes up and people start shooting at each other, people are going to die on both sides. People are going to die. Do I believe we could defeat Iran? I believe we could. But I want you to know it won't be a walk in the park, and I'll show that to you when I tell you what Iran has militarily when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, so let me give you a rundown on Iran a little bit here from a story from Fox News. I want to give this to you. It says that uh, Iran, when you talk to military, there are two military institutions. There is the Artesh, or the regular armed forces. They're, They're Army, Navy, and Air. Then there's the Revolutionary Guard, the true believers, way I put it for them or you'll hear them referred to as the IRGC, uh, with its own separate chain of command and force structure. The same thing that... Uh, the Nazis had Hussein, that, right? the, uh, yeah, the Nazis yeah. had the military, and then they had the Gestapo. It was like yeah. this parallel structure. Yeah, the SS. The SS. Right? Yeah, they had the SS. Most of the subterfuge and malicious activities in the Middle East that can be you know, attributed to Iranian actors is the work of the IRGC. Miguel Miranda, an expert analyst in military technology in Asia, told Fox News, now Iran has a colorful arsenal and much of it is obviously dated but still functional. They got the old CH-47 Chinooks and and take you back to the Iranian hostages for the CH-47 and the M-60 Patton tanks uh, immediately come to mind. That's what Artish is stuck with. But he cautioned. Since the 90s, Iran's state-owned military-industrial sector has made steady progress in four particular areas as now a regional leader alongside Israel and Turkey when it comes to unmanned systems, small arms and light weapons, artillery and ballistic missiles, and other guided munitions. For instance, if we went after Israel, we'd have a real fight on our hands. They They might not win, but they would take their pound of flesh. Okay, I I hope that everybody understands what I'm saying. We'll never go after Israel, but that's the basics of it because of their armaments. Iran has demonstrated it can launch dozens of road mobile short-range ballistic missiles at targets beyond its borders. Recent innovations include a cruise missile. Now, remember, they used a cruise missile here just recently when they shot them over at Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's likely patterned on a Soviet design with a range exceeding 1,200 miles. So they can reach out a little bit. So if you've got the 7th Fleet sitting out in the middle of the Mediterranean, they're not safe, bottom line. Iran's missile technology and ability to manufacture that is far more advanced than any Arab state. Iran can mass-produce short, medium, and long-range anti-aircraft missiles based on reverse-engineered Chinese, Russian, and U.S. models. While Iran has been party to the Treaty for the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons for almost four decades, it is not a member of the Missile Technology Control Regime, nor the Hague Code of Conduct against Ballistic Missile Proliferation. Since 79's revolution and imposition of hefty Western sanctions, coupled with the devastating 80s war with bordering Iraq, Iran has been battling a feeble economy, tight restrictions when it comes to easily advancing its weapons cash the way most people and others in the region have been able to do. Thus, much of the Iranian depository said to be locally made with abundant government funding to spend on everything from importing tools 
and parts to developing factories with a little help from the outside. According to John Wood, an analyst and author of Russia, the asymmetric threat to the United States, Iran acquires the majority of its equipment and expertise from Russia and China, along with acquiring technology through the black market, especially from Eastern Europe and North Korea, as well as through clandestine operations in Western Europe. While the U.N. conventional arms embargo has somewhat helped limit what Iran can access abroad through other channels, it expires in October of 2020. Rendering an open question as to whether Iran can then purchase more state-of-the-art weaponry from a broader array of uh, actors. Miranda underscored that Iranian drones are another success story. Wanted to make sure you understood that. And then there is covert action routinely employed to mimic the inventions of its enemies. In particular, Miranda surmised, is that the losses of U.S. drones throughout the protracted war in Afghanistan have aided Iran in the way of acquiring the damaged models and enabled them to analyze them for reverse engineering. Iran will use militias, cells, and spies in Shia communities throughout the region to conduct sabotage, especially of the energy complex, kidnapping of Westerners, and attack on the U.S. and its allies. Remember, our southern border is a wide open area. They, they probably have sleeper cells all over this country. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you what a lot of people have told me. Over the decades, Iran has developed an extensive and robust military-industrial complex. They also have chemical and biological weapons. Yet the breadth and condition of its chemical and biological capabilities, despite having ratified the Biological and Toxin Weapons Conventions in 73, is not completely clear. So there you have it. They've got all kinds of missiles. They have an... They have enough people they can put in and throw them up against us, you know, bullet catchers, so to speak. <coughs> if you remember the Iraq-Iran uh, war, how many tens, hundreds of thousands of people died in that? That would be something we probably would face in some way or another. Yeah, look. The- you don't go into war thinking it's going to be a cakewalk. If you go to war, you're going to take casualties and if you think otherwise then you don't understand what war is that doesn't mean that there aren't circumstances that warrant it no uh but um it, it it's messy business uh and they often say you, you plan for one thing and then within the first 10 seconds uh all that goes out the window because circumstances change Paul of war yeah indeed so it's uh uh it's a, what i find oddly entertaining perhaps about this is that the left was screaming oh he's he's driving us to war he's driving us to war yeah. and then when he backed away uh, oh my gosh he's he he see what he does he runs right up and then he chickens right, out right right so uh, it's it's really um uh unsurprisingly the left uh will attack trump for whatever he does sure that's the thing. Whichever way they can what, take it, they will take it. Whatever way they can. That looks the most negative to the president. Terry, I have noticed uh, uh, from time to time uh, a liberal uh, uh, backing up Trump on a limited issue, uh, and and I was impressed by that. But it's overwhelmingly not the case, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. Let me just say, for all of you who may have been listening 
and you thought that Dave is saying we shouldn't attack Iran. That's not what I'm saying. Right, right. But you have to think. You have to recognize over the, the shooting down a drone. I don't think that's the best time to go to war with a uh, another country. I think that these idiots are going to do something much more threatening, and they may get their butts kicked. But and, I hope. And that the president may still do something else as well. We'll talk about it when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you. By the way, I want to go back and just clarify something about that last segment. And that is, don't think that I'm saying there's not a time for war. There is times for war. Uh, but shooting down a drone is not one of them. I don't, at least I don't believe, and the president didn't believe, and I got to give him credit for saying, hey, you know, that's my, my response right now. Um, I think that somebody stepped over the line, maybe in the IGRC or whatever, or the IRGC, I guess it is, and what they did is um, they probably didn't talk to superiors and shot down a drone. That's what the president suggested, and that may be the case. It may not be the case. Yeah. Uh, we don't know. And uh, I, uh, I tend to be somewhat more in favor of responding to acts of aggression. Uh, but with that said, if it's true that it would have killed 150 people, that does seem somewhat disproportionate. Yeah. Uh, I think you can respond to an act of aggression like the one we saw uh, without necessarily killing 150 people and not because I'm concerned about killing 150 of those in their so-called elite military uh, units that are largely terrorists, uh, but because if you raise the stakes that much – uh, you will escalate things beyond where you want to. It becomes incendiary. Yeah. Then? So I think you can do it in uh, in a more measured way, albeit I'm not I'm never in love with that kind of terminology about measured response. But but it, in all seriousness, though, does make some sense in many instances. But one thing I will say, a lot of the people who cry for an all out response have never been in a situation in war. Yeah. I, I, I'm just saying, you, if you've not they're, been they're, there, you have they're, no idea what it's really like. Right, and the notion of an all-out response is, is is clearly a mistake. I mean, that much is for sure a mistake. It has to be somewhat, as I just articulated, measured uh, so as to achieve the goals you're trying to achieve. I mean, seriously, yeah. I, I can bet you there's, number one, the American Legion's having their centennial celebration in North Little Rock right now over at uh, um, the, uh, oh, what's uh, the name of the uh, steakhouse and and hotel over there? That's where they're at today and having a oh, big the, meeting the over River Fletcher's Front, place. Yeah. yeah. You know, Mr. Fletcher yeah. owns that, does a great job at right. the steakhouse and, the, and, and Benihana's yeah. and all that yeah. stuff right there. But they're meeting there. Because uh, Arkansas was the first place that had an active chapter Is that right? for the American I Legion didn't that, that I didn't started a hundred years ago. That's interesting. But anybody who has served in the military who's seen combat, and I'll eight two five zero nine six five lines open. After you've seen combat, the last thing you really want to see again is combat. I think every one of my fellow brothers and sisters in the military I'm talking to right now. Uh, would tell you that we all know that we had to have a job to do. If you're in the, in the, the military, you're not there to get an education. You can, 
you're not there to, you know, put on a static air show or anything. You're there in case you're needed to, you know, of course, break things, of course, kill and break things. That's exactly why you're there. And uh, at the at the call of the commander in chief, you hope that I'm just saying, I hope that call never comes for you. I I think. In fact, I think just as an aside, I think Tim Griffin is is doing some military military service this weekend. Mm. Yeah. yeah, he's in the reserve. For everybody who yeah. thinks the reserves don't do anything, they train. Oh, They're yeah. just like the the National Guard. They train, and if necessary, if the active forces need their services, oh, they'll call them up. They can be called up you, at a moment's notice. Did you know that Tim Griffin has a combat action badge? Uh, and well, he, he was in Iran. Uh, or Iraq. a rap army. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's. I don't the want real you to deal. think that he was on some kind of wet squad behind right, exactly. enemy lines or something, taking out people with a <laughs> with a short uh, barrel rifle. Yeah, right? yeah, whatever he, yeah. Uh, you know, he's a, a what uh, he's a he's in the army. He's a full bird colonel in the army jag. He's in the military. Yeah, he's a jag. That's right. That's the thing. Right. You got to have jags. I'm just telling. Oh yeah, you. but what I'm there. saying is, here's a jag, and this guy has a car combat action badge because he was in the thick of things no yeah 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 things were blowing up around him that's exactly right or could have blown up around no, him. i think they actually did yeah, yeah so it's, it's not a fun position to no. be that's why i have so much respect for tom cotton our state senator that's right i mean look he didn't have to do what he did he right. joined right and not only did he join uh but he was on the tip of the spear yeah yeah. The tip of the spear means he was in the front of every, with everybody else right. going in and getting the job done. He was doing dirty stuff. He was get, getting his hands dirty, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for him. Mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. We want to have him on in the near future to talk yeah. about his new book yeah. that he wrote about Arlington. I want to do that. But speaking of uh, the uh, lieutenant governor, you were quoting. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are talking about it. We can talk some politics here mm-hmm. at the very end, local And that is, uh, we all know that Sarah Sanders, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is coming back uh, in August. And, of course, everybody's saying, well, she's going to run for governor. Well, not everybody knows that, although I feel like she may run for governor. And I know that Sarah Huckabee Sanders.com has already been bought up as a website and things of that nature. And a lot of people think that the lieutenant governor should start, uh, you know, running. Because his chances are going to be dim, and I don't buy that. Do you buy that? No, I don't. Uh, You know, I've said uh, for some time now that the election really starts in 2020. I've I've sort of modified that Game of Thrones, and it's 2020's coming. That's when the you know that's when the campaigning starts uh, for two years thereafter. That's good. And uh, um, I have long uh, endorsed uh, Tim Griffin on your show, and I do. I I endorse him. I know you have. I know you have. And and. Well, I think she is a um, smart she, person, and but she's an unknown quantity, right? Right, and 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 she comes in automatically with some uh, certainly name recognition and, and credibility, right? And credibility, exactly, uh, and, and deservedly so. Let's be clear. But I think at this time in this state, Tim Griffin is the right person. He's been here serving in that position as lieutenant governor. Will be then for eight years. Am I right on the math yep. here? Uh, formerly a, a congressman, as you know, as I just mentioned, a full bird colonel. Uh, and so. He, and before that, 
was prosecutor Eastern District. Oh, that's right. Was down in Florida. U.S. Attorney. Count- Let's be yeah, clear. U.S. US attorney. attorney. Down right. uh, down in Florida, counting votes uh, during the Bush campaign right. against uh, Gore. That's right. So you know he's paid, and I'm not saying it's his turn. I'm, no. Here's what I'm no, saying. No, no. When you look at somebody who he's got has the experience, the experience he's, got, he's the experience. got a lot of experience. That's right. That's right. So uh, I um, happily stand by my endorsement of Tim, uh, and and I I know he will be a fantastic governor, and I'm confident that he will become the governor. But with that said, I'm not trying to overly prognosticate. Uh, if uh, Sarah Sanders decides to get in the race, she automatically, as we discussed, will will have a lot of gravitas. Other than Griffin, I think the most interesting uh, part of this is between her and Leslie Rutledge, because she has worked with Leslie Rutledge, and it will be interesting. They're very good friends. What happens with that one? Yeah. Someone mentioned to me that um, Bozeman might, might, I don't want to sort of... Retire. Right, retire. Uh, if he does, and only if he does, because I think he's doing a solid job. Yeah. He's kind of the quiet one, so yeah. to speak. I love John. Yeah. He's a good friend. He, he's really doing a solid job, and we, we need to remember that. Uh, but if he retires, then there's a spot that's going to be a lot of scrambling for. And I can tell you who will be scrambling for. Well, it, but it, it, in part, Sarah <laughs> Sanders, in the sense that she's coming from Washington, and that's a position in Washington, mm-hmm. she would have... Uh, 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 a fair sort of claim sure. to run for that position. Or so would Leslie Rutledge. That's right. Well, that's what made me think of your, uh, um, uh, after you made the comparison between the two, that's what made me and think of And we know who, right. I don't know who the 800-pound gorilla in that race would be because there's the other person who would be considered for that would yeah. be, at that time, former governor Asa Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. I would think that that would be a post that, he might be interested in that running for as well. That could be. Because he said in an interview not too long ab- yeah. ago that the governorship is not the final Chapter. place you would like to end up at. Yeah. I don't think he's thinking about running for, for president. Right. Could be wrong, but I right. don't think he's and thinking about not, that. But I do think next, he's yeah. thinking senator. Could be. That's right. That's right. Well, then there'd be a lot of jockeying for position. Oh. But there'd be some stark contrasts there. But see here, this is what gets interesting because now with the Republican Party being as strong as it is here in the state, these were inevitable Yeah, that there would be these kinds of fights within the party. Right. It's an inevitability. It happens. Well, and I uh, know if I had Doyle Webb sitting right in here with us, right. he would say the exact same thing. Yeah. We've got a lot of strong candidates, unlike the Democrats who have a very, very weak bench, if not a non-existent exactly. bench. That's not, they're not part of the race. I but, mean, they, but, have, they talk about Tucker and that. No. Tucker, no. Uh, Sorry. Uh, let him run. Yeah, well, sure. Okay, great, great. Or this guy that uh, ran the, way, the last he's right. time. He's a friendly guy. He's a nice guy. Yeah, but, the guy who ran this last time for I governor. I don't even know who it was. I forget his yeah, name, exactly. too. That tells you why. Right, exactly. Who? What I right. just said, weak bench. No. Well, Here's the thing. We need to continue to move forward towards conservatism because as we discussed when we had on your show, Dave, uh, the panel of state senators and then we had a panel of state reps. um, And I think we did another discussion at least once uh, in addition. uh, 
we're a Republican um, legislature. I'm not sure that we are as conservative as we should be. That's why we need a strong conservative at the, the controls governor. in the governor's that's right. office. Well, exactly. That's, my point. that's exactly. We are on the same page. And who's that? That's yeah, Tim, Tim Griffin. Griffin. That's Tim Griffin. As far as I know, yeah, because Sarah hasn't come back to articulate exactly where she stands. Right. Well, and, and I'm not saying she would be bad, but who's the right man, person? Let's not, right? Um, send your letters to Dave. Uh, who's the right person? Uh, Tim Griffin really is. He's just, the stars have aligned, so to speak, in terms of his experience, his background, um, his boots on the ground. Uh, to to have him uh, serve as a good, strong, conservative governor of this state. And after saying all of that, Tim, you owe me dinner <laughs> at the chop shop. <laughs> all right, let's take a break here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Final segment with Robert Steinbach in a moment. All right, so it's come up again. Hashtag me too. Okay. And that is this longtime advice columnist has accused President Trump of sexual assault in the 1990s. The left has no shame. I'm just going to, that's just the way I say it. No shame whatsoever. She kind of looks like Diane Keaton from Andy, uh, Annie Hall in this picture here. Remember, she really does. That's a good look. Her name is E. Jean Carroll. Uh, a longtime advice columnist has accused President Trump of sexually assaulting her in a New York City dressing room 20 years ago, saying the episode ended only after a colossal struggle with the then businessman. New York Magazine on Friday published the allegations by the columnist as part of an excerpt from her forthcoming book, What a Big Surprise, in which she accuses Trump and multiple other men of improper sexual behavior. Now improper sexual behavior, might I add. Uh, she alleged the Trump incident occurred at the department store Bergdorf Goodman. You might know about that. I, I do. Don't know. Yeah, okay. it's a fancy schmancy uh, department store in New York. Kind of like Tiffany's, but yeah, not but more. Broad, not, Tiffany's yeah, jewelry. Not jewelry. Right? Yeah. All right. In either in either the the fall of '95 or spring or '96, she doesn't know which. Uh, Carol is known for her Ask E. Jean column, which runs an L. Magazine. Trump on Friday released a lengthy statement vehemently denying the allegations. Quote, I've never met this person in my life. He's trying to sell a new book that should indicate her motivation. It should be sold in the fiction section. In the excerpt, Carol, who had a daily advice show at the time, said Trump recognized her and asked for her help choosing a gift. She said they eventually made their way into the lingerie section and then a dressing room. The moment the dressing room door is closed. Wait, wait. They, how did they wait? That's a good idea. Why did she go to the to the lingerie dressing room with him? Was she she trying on <laughs> something that he wanted to buy for his wife or something? It's crazy. Anyway, I pushes me against the wall, story. hits my head quite badly, and puts his mouth against my lips. In explicit detail, Kara wrote that Trump held her against the wall and pulled down her tights. The next moment, still wearing correct business, tire shirt, tie, suit, jacket, overcoat. He opens the overcoat, unzips his pants, and starts forcing his fingers around my private area. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, now there's all of this information that she puts out. Let me just say something. This woman has written an advice column. 
This woman has done a radio show. Why is it suddenly she's getting ready to sell a book and now it's the first time anybody's heard about this? It's a good question. I mean, look, I you know, I'm open to a legitimate complaint, look, but anything's don't look possible, legitimate right? to me. Anything's possible. That's a thing. And so uh, I have no idea what happened. The first of this allegation I hear is from you right now. I can't speak to that. Uh, but you certainly have raised questions already about uh, the, the story and maybe their responses. Uh, but that's the thing with these things. Uh, you know, if these are uh, allegations, they... Um, uh, yeah, I want you to listen to this in the story. Yeah. But while the president said he's never met Carol before, the article posted online Friday by the New York Magazine, a bastion of conservatism, <laughs> by the way. I say that joking. with... Yeah, you can see the cynicism out of my lips right now. Included a photo of Trump with his then-wife, Ivana, talking with Carol and her husband at a party. Now, you ask me who I've met at parties over the the course of my career. I couldn't tell you how many different people I've met. You can say, did you know this person? I go, no. Did you ever meet her at a him or her at a party? Which he was not the president wasn't asked that. I mean, there's always the chance that I met him. I don't know everybody that I meet at a party. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. This is politically motivated. Period. So all you hashtag me too women, they're playing you. I'm just telling you right now, you're being played. Enough. <laughs> I've said enough. <laughs> That enough. I get tired of this stuff. Anyway, that's that's an, that's the other one. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States today said, "Are you ready for this one? I'm this waiting. is a good one." Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court ruled today that people can sue in federal court if they believe state or local governments have infringed on their property rights. Oh, I saw that on the siding with a Pennsylvania woman fighting her town over a, a supposed cemetery. On her land. This, this is, is good news. This is a really important ruling because here's the problem with our legal system as a general matter. The, the judges have built in a layer or layers of bureaucracy that are stealing our rights every day. And so uh, previous courts have said if the state steals your property, they call it taking. I call it stealing. Uh, if they take your property. There's not a whole lot of difference. Yeah, exactly. You steal something, you take something. Exactly. They take your property, you've got to go to the state court first. And you say, well, okay, maybe that makes sense. Wait a second, wait a second. Then I just remembered that the federal constitution has a provision called the takings clause that says if any government takes my property, I'm entitled to money for that. So why do I got to go to the state government if the federal constitution entitles me to compensation in federal court? And then to add bureaucracy on on top of bureaucracy, as courts have unfortunately done too often in the past, they said, and if you lose in state court, then we kind of will rubber stamp what they have to say because we're not going to retry the case. So the state takes away your property and then you go to a state court and you lose – and then you come to federal court and say, well, now I would finally like to have my federal constitutional rights pursuant to the taking clause enforced. And they used to say, sorry, too late. And you say, well, too late? You didn't let me come in earlier. And they say, exactly. 
Wait, what? Exactly. Who's on first? What's on second? Yeah. Uh, it's an Abbott and Costello routine. Yeah, and or March Brothers. Right, and this is and this is what government has done too often. And finally, there's been some backpedaling on this where the Supreme Court said, no, it's a federal constitutional right. You get to go straight past go to federal court. And that's the way it should be. And the next thing, I'll give you a, a preview. The next thing that the courts are going to have to deal with and get rid of is this notion of deference to federal agencies. You know that if, the, if you sue a federal agency on some law, you go into court and they say, well, even though you interpret the law one way and the federal agency interprets the law the other way. In deference to yeah, the EPA. In deference to them, we'll rule with them. Wait, what? As you said earlier, Dave, why is Lady Justice picking up the blindfold and looking over to the government, no less, of all parties? Because mm-hmm. gosh knows, it, it, the phrase is you can't fight City Hall. You can't fight government. Not you can't fight the little guy. And they look over and they say, well, you're the big guy. You're City Hall. We give you the benefit of the doubt. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm with you. It's either legal or it's not. Right. How about level playing field? Yeah. That just goes to feed into people's paranoia about That's right. the guy Correctly. with all the money. That's right. Wins. That's right. The golden rule is he with the gold rules. rules. That's right. I got you. Enough of that. We're out of time. We'll be picking some of this stuff back up on Monday when Robert will be back with me on the Dave Ellswick Show, as well as Whitney Davis making a return engagement to the Dave Ellswick Show. I, I'm excited about having Whitney back in the studio. And uh, Robert can see that I'm kind of I'm excited about this. It's going to be fun. A bright, articulate young woman that that uh, you who remember will be glad to hear from again as well. Until then, have a great weekend. Don't forget, God gave you a whole week of life. Give Him one day. Spend at least one hour wherever you worship and see what He might have to say to you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.